0: Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 29 of The Essential X-Lapsed, where, uh, as always, I am reporting in from the squeaky chair, which is uh, getting squeakier by the day. I'm going to need to uh, hurl this thing out a nearby window pretty soon because it's very, very annoying, (laughs) especially when I go to edit these episodes and I hear, "Eh, eh, eh," like, every third or fourth word, and I'm sure that's not a pleasant experience for the listeners as well. So, uh, yeah, going to be... Trying to pick out a new chair pretty soon here. But uh, today, we're going to be going off the beaten path. We're not going to be discussing the next issue of X-Men, which, after going through issue 21, might be a relief to some of you. It's uh, certainly a relief to me. Uh, that was not that was not the funnest issue to go through. That was uh, kind of a mess of an issue. And uh, especially after going through it two, three, four times to uh, put together the notes, it was uh, one I... Don't think I ever need to see again So this is going to be a uh, little bit of a break And today we're going to be kicking off a trilogy of episodes And it is the Mentalo Trilogy And, uh, well, you might be raising an eyebrow Or furrowing both eyebrows at that Uh, Why in the hell would we dedicate so much time to Mentalo? I mean, Mentalo's barely An X-Men character as it is, right? I mean, we do know him from, you know, current year X stuff He is part of the S.W.O.R.D. Volume 2 cast, right? He has his think tank, he reports to Abigail Brand He is a mutant, and he has a Krakoan citizenship So that might just make him X enough to cover And uh, I I only came to this deduction using the most scientific of methods And that was basically asking people on social media What they thought about me covering uh, the (laughs) Mentalo introduction story here and I got a mixture of answers. I uh, I don't know what I was expecting. I, I think I was expecting a slam dunk, either for or against. And uh, I got more of a mixture in responses here. Some of the main, you know, don't cover this answers were basically that Mantello sucks, <laughs> and well, yeah, kinda, he does. Um, But some of the responses that actually inspired me to go through with it Were more along the lines of uh, folks expressing like literal surprise That Mentolo didn't first appear in an X-Men comic And uh, that he isn't really such an X-Men character He is a mutant, of course, so he is under our purview Insofar as, you know, essential X-Labs is concerned But uh, he's certainly not one that looms large, Right? And you guys know how I always joke that we're uh, fake-ass comics historians here on this program, but, you know, that is only a joke. I, I feel like we are, you know, uh, I-, I say it to be self-depreciating and uh, to take a little bit of the piss out of it, but uh, we all do care about comics history. I mean, if you're listening to a show where we're going to be talking about an obscure Silver Age story, you're probably, at least passively, interested in Silver Age comics and the history of comics, so... Here we are, talking about Mentalo, a character that not all of us know a whole heck of a lot about. I mean, I didn't know anything about him until not too long ago myself. Mostly because I always conflated him with Mesmero, who is another pretty obscure, perhaps even more obscure, of a uh, character insofar as X-Men lore is concerned than uh, Mentalo himself. The thing of it is, is uh, Mesmero had an X-Men trading card. (laughs) Which is where... I got a lot of my uh, foundational knowledge on X-Men history because, I mean, it was the early 90s. There wasn't reprints like there is now. There uh, there certainly wasn't a Marvel Unlimited. There really wasn't a whole lot of collected editions. The Essentials were still several years out. Of course, there were the uh, Marvel uh, Milestones or the—what what were those things? The Masterworks. But those were 50 bucks each, and uh, as an 11-year-old kid, I was not getting $50 to buy a book and uh, when it came to Christmas time, if I was going to get a $50 gift, it was probably going to be a video game <laughs> rather than a book. So yeah, I didn't know a whole heck of a lot about the history, and uh, all I knew about Mesmero was what I got from the trading card. So Mesmero, Mentalo, Tomato, Tomato, I think I just conflated the two, and uh, maybe I subconsciously attributed more importance to both characters in my naivete and, uh, I don't know, lack of uh, lack of knowledge, my ignorance, basically. So yeah, back to uh, my point here We are all not so much fake-ass comics historians We actually care about comics history And if I have the opportunity to fill in any blind spots For for myself as well as anybody listening I I love to do so So that's pretty much what put it over the top for me uh, In as far as making the decision to cover this trilogy And I don't expect these episodes to be listened to by very many people Considering the obscurity and the lack of uh, actual X-Men But uh but for those who do, myself included, hopefully we'll learn a thing or two about a character who I think a lot of folks just recently met in uh, The Pages of Sword. So uh, let's get right into it. This, my friends, is Strange Tales number 141, which had a February 1966 cover date. Story's called Operation Brain Blast, written and edited by Stan Lee, pencils Jack Kirby, inks Frank Ray, letters Sam Rosen, colors uh, double pen, I suppose, and a cover price of 12 cents. This is uh, only half the issue. The other half is a Doctor Strange story, which uh, we will not be covering. But uh, let's, let's get into this, uh, this S.H.I.E.L.D. story. We open with our Silver Age spoilery splash page, in which Nick Fury is wearing a satellite dish on his head. It's very, very bizarre stuff here. Um, now, he's flanked by a pair of ne'er-do-wells, both of whom we'll be meeting for the first time here in this very story, but not until, not until the end of it. They are the Fixer... And uh, of course, the reason we're bothering to look at this story in the first place, Mentalo Oh, and by the way, SHIELD stands for Supreme Headquarters International Espionage Law Enforcement Division for this issue, and we'll have to see if that changes as we work our way through this uh this three-parter, because they seem to change what uh SHIELD stands for uh pretty often these days. Um anyway, our story opens at Hydra HQ with the fallout of Hydra's defeat in the previous issue. Fury and the Shieldsters corral the remaining agents. Now, Nick and Dum-Dum are paying particular attention to a pretty young thing named Laura Brown, who's also known as Agent G. Turns out she's the daughter of Imperial Hydra, Arnold Brown. But here's the thing. Despite being one of the baddies, she apparently saved Nick Fury's bacon in the previous story, helping him to escape from captivity. Nick suggests that Laura stays with the rest of the Hydras while he heads upstairs to take her father down once and for all. Well, she refuses to remain. She would like to see this through to the end. Now, Dum Dum's kind of annoyed that Nick even Nick's even given her the choice in the matter, to which he is swiftly reminded that, uh, without her intervention last issue, Fury himself would have likely been offed, and Hydra would have never fallen. And so, up the stairs they go. Unfortunately, the way is blocked by a solid steel door. And so, S.H.I.E.L.D. Agent Gabe produces a diamond-tipped drill gimmick. And, I mean, this thing is, like, bigger than he is, so I'm not sure which pocket he was keeping it in. Um, anyway... Gabe does the thing and starts cutting his way through the door. Laura asks Nick to promise her not to harm her father when they find him. And, well, he can't make that promise because he's pretty sure Arnold's going to probably come at them with guns blazing. Now, after Gabe's done with the drilling, all that's left is for Dum-Dum to wield his mighty hammer, a dull maybe, uh, to uh, punch their way in. Meanwhile, we had a few flights up where Arnold Brown is readying to press the self-destruct button to send the entire building to Hades, stating that even in death, so long as he takes out Nick Fury and shield, Imperial Hydra will be victorious. Here's the thing, he can't bring himself to push it because his daughter is still in the building. And even though she's gone soft on him, he can't bring himself to kill her. Just then, a pair of Hydra agents enter the room attempting to flee the shield scene. Upon seeing Arnold Brown, they assume that he's just some interloper. And despite him informing them that he's actually their leader, Imperial Hydra, well, they just ain't buying it. Uh, Nobody's actually seen him without his costume, you see, and so they shoot and kill this uh, mustachioed gentleman. Then, using their suction shoes, they escape out the window. Hmm, suction shoes, you say? I wonder if those will come back around. Well, exactly three seconds later, Nick and the gang burst into Imperial Hydra's office. Seeing that her father's been shot dead, Laura is beside herself with grief. A couple of shieldsters take aim out the window and proceed to fire at the suction shoe escapees. Laura runs over to her father and cradles his dead body in her arms, crying out that all she ever wanted was for him to care about her. Dum Dum ruins the moment by asking Nick what their plan is for Ms. Brown. He cites that if they let her go, well, the newspapers are going to have Fury's hide. Just then, Agent Gabe finds a pair of suction shoes in a closet and shows them to Fury which, after demonstrating what they can do, gives our colonel an idea. He gives the shoes to Laura, and he lets her escape. (laughs) And it's a really, really awkward page. Uh, There almost had to be a better way to do this, but it's, uh, it's what we get. Now, you see, Nick has her try on the shoes and asks her to, quote, demonstrate what they can do. Once outside, walking down the wall of the building, she turns back and warns that, you know, hey, you know, I could probably escape right now and Nick replies with a, yeah, no kidding, now get the hell out of here, sort of an answer. Dum-Dum goes against type, and uh, well, he realizes what Fury's actually doing here, and he reminds him that the press is going to have a field day with this, and uh, Nick suddenly doesn't care. He's, uh, <laughs> he's like, whatever, I look forward to it. Now, with that dangling thread out of the way for now, uh, Fury and the gang head back to HQ, with Nick and an Agent Jones leaving via a Hydra saucer which facilitates a cross-section look at Hydra HQ and their escape route. Now, from the top of Hydra HQ, which is basically a skyscraper, uh, there's a tunnel, like an elevator shaft, that goes down the building and into the underground, all the way to the harbor, through a decoy ship, and then finally to the open air. So, speaking a little bit of S.H.I.E.L.D. HQ, how about we, how about we go there? And let's join a, a Niles Nordstrom, the head researcher for S.H.I.E.L.D.'s ESP division. Now, he oversees three thinkers who are hooked up to this crazy-looking brainwave stimulator machine with blinders over their eyes. Now, they've been tasked with throwing their thoughts, and it's time to test their progress. Now, you see, they are to psychically warn Nick Fury that there's danger in that room. The danger being Niles Nordstrom himself with a rocket pistol, which he will unload into Nick if he doesn't get the psychic warning. Which seems a little bit extreme, does it not? Oh, well. Anyway, so, silliness aside, we rejoin Fury as he's entered the ESP Division hallway. And, well, he is struck by the thoughts of the thinkers. And it hits him so hard that he drops to his knees. At which point, several satellite dish-wearing espers tackle him and put that stupid satellite dish on his head, too, like that we saw at the opening page. Now, Fury demands to know what the hell's going on, and I really can't blame him. Now, he's told that the ESP Division wanted to impress him with a demo, and, I mean, there's gotta be easier ways to do that, right? I mean, like, there are parlor tricks aplenty when it comes to mind reading, right? It should have been easier than that. Anyway, now this alarm wave that the thinker sent out didn't just affect Nick Fury, right? He, they, he, of course, he was affected by it, but it wasn't just him. In fact, we jump thousands of miles away where a certain mutant is awakened. Now, he immediately knows that S.H.I.E.L.D. is still going through with Operation Brain Blast, and, uh... Well, now he knows that they found others to replace him in the testing He sits up out of bed and places a gaudy scramble helmet on his head And he reveals that he was born with the power to project his thoughts into images And proceeds to give us the quick and dirty on his origin You see, this fella joined S.H.I.E.L.D. for nefarious reasons He wanted to use his mutant ability to gain control over the organization But, well, he was found out before he could actually do so And so he escaped But he's been keeping tabs on S.H.I.E.L.D. to see if they'd continue their ESP endeavors And, well, yeah, yeah they have Now our new friend vows to strike back at S.H.I.E.L.D. and destroy them But knows that he can't do it alone And so he lets his mind go blank while he searches for one who might help him And he finds the Fixer Now the Fixer, you might be familiar with the Fixer from Thunderbolts But uh, if you're not, he's kind of like Forge in a way there's allegedly nothing he cannot make. And so we spend a couple of pages watching him use the items in his jail cell to facilitate his escape. Now, he somehow magnetizes his bed and fashions a gas mask and goggles out of uh, maybe the springs in his mattress. I don't know. He uses the rubber sheeting on his bed to create a rubber suit. And I, I did, like, did the fixer wet his bed or something? Was Did he have uh, incontinence? I, why, does, why did he have rubber sheets? Anyway, long story short, he escapes. And Mentalo, of course, is pleased. And he states that together, they could rule mankind. We wrap up back at the ESP division, where Nick Fury, no longer wearing the satellite dish, is chatting up Nordstrom. The nerd mentions that uh, their espers will be just as powerful as anyone who can genuinely read minds. To which Fury says there ain't no such thing as someone who could read minds. Which makes me wonder, like, is he new or something? I... He lives here, right? The the Marvel Universe? Oh, well. Well, Niles corrects him, stating that not only is it a real phenomenon, but S.H.I.E.L.D. used to have one of them. And Fury is pretty freaked out, and he names Mentalo as the most dangerous guy in the world. Whether or not that's true will uh, remain to be seen, but that, my friends, is where we leave it. So let's talk about it here, and I feel like it's time to uh, pull the old... Uh, Silly but fun um, descriptor out huh? Because that's basically what this was here This was very, very silly um, The pseudoscience and the, the nebulous use of uh, uh powers It's very, very bizarre And it's only going to get more bizarre as we move forward here I have looked a few pages into the next chapter And uh, it, it, <laughs> what they're going to do with quote-unquote mental powers is uh, going to be kind of baffling, and I think we're going to have a lot of fun uh, playing with that and uh, and kind of taking it apart. But let's take the mental out of it for a minute and just uh, talk about the the story we got here. I have not read very many Nick Fury stories, period, you know, regardless of the era or uh, generation. So this is... Uh, basically new new ground for me to take a look at a Silver Age Nick Fury story and certainly not something I would have ever saw myself doing willingly <laughs> and uh, I suppose that's another reason why I was so excited to cover the Mentolo trilogy because it would uh, broaden my horizons a little bit I've literally never read these stories and uh, I know a lot of people remember them with fondness I just don't happen to be one of those people I mean we can go across the street to DC and think about the other you know uh, war style books, you know, uh, Sergeant Rock, Enemy Ace, you know those characters who also really never did much for me. In fact, if you've been following um, following my work, it sounds very, very uh, self-absorbed. But if you've been following what I do on the internet, You'll know that uh, I was uh, introduced to Blackhawk during the Action Comics Weekly, Action Comics Daily uh, deal over at Chris's on Infinite Earths. And I went into that with a little bit of trepidation, because it just didn't seem like a, uh, it just wasn't something that I saw myself enjoying or even trying. And, you know, I kind of forced myself to do it, uh, as it was, you know, a completionist project, but turned out to be one of my favorite, if not my favorite, uh, strip from the entire Action Comics Weekly endeavor. So I, you know, broadened my horizons, it opened my eyes, it uh, gave me an appreciation for a whole genre that I had, uh, kind of dismissed. So, I guess this is kind of the Marvel version of that. And I gotta say, I'm happy that we, uh, that we read it here, and, and broadened at least my horizons. <laughs> gave me a, uh, a little bit of an appreciation for these stories that... I've never been able to glom onto. So it's nice to have a, a nebulous tie to the mutants here. I mean, Mentolo was never called a mutant here. I'm not sure he's going to be called a mutant for this entire three issue run. I'm not sure if this is something that they decided on after the fact when they realized that, you know, making sure you added mutants to books was going to help them sell or. I don't know, maybe you need to have, like, the mutant menace of Mentalo on the cover of whatever issue he's currently appearing in. I mean, that's probably how I'm going to share this episode. <laughs> I'm going to mention that he is a mutant. I'll probably use the mutant menace of Mentalo <laughs> in my description, just so uh, folks don't see it and like be like, why is he covering a, a S.H.I.E.L.D. story, you know, of-, of all things. So it may just pique someone's curiosity enough to uh, hit download or play or... Uh, maybe just pushing the heart who knows <laughs> either way i uh i'm happy to have read this story and i'm happy to have shared it with uh with all of you hopefully this was a uh, this was new territory for for many of us and uh, we're learning more and more about uh the fringes of mutantum and uh the x-men universe here but i think that's about all i have to say about the issue which um I guess that takes me to my final point about wanting to do this trilogy of issues Because, somewhat selfishly, it's a, it's going to be easy <laughs> These three issues, I don't have letters pages for Strange Tales and, and despite how much I love doing the letters pages, it does take a lot of time So don't have to worry about that here And since these are books that happened in uh, cover months that we've already covered in the X-Men book Bullpen Bulletins are already done too So... Less back matter here, which uh, makes for an easier easier few days for your humble host. But while we don't have letters for the issue, we do have mailbag for the show. So let's hop into those messages now. We're going to start with Joe Crawford talking about X-Men number eight. And he's got a numbered list. I love numbered lists. You guys know that when we do the letters pages and I see numbers. Oof, those are uh, my bread and butter right there. One. Stan is always busting Jack's chops about coiffers Or coiff hairdos. I don't know how to say coiffures. Stan should lay off or Jack's gonna get bitter And I, I could just imagine their relationship at this point um, It's funny, every time there's like a, uh, a complaint Stan is... <laughs> I mean, I love Stan But uh, he's pretty quick to, to push that blame And, uh, well, yes, he could be very self-depreciating as well he, He's not shy about it Two, future beast? My issue didn't have that. I'm going to write a letter. Future beast? X-Men 8, huh? I remember we had, like, some weird temporal anomaly when I recorded that that I couldn't scrub from the episode. I I don't know what it was all about. I I don't know what you're talking about, huh? Huh, future beast? Hmm, I don't know. Three, bring back Bobby's boots. Well, we got good news for you. Bobby's boots are back. And four... Great episode. Well, thank you so much. Uh, the X-Men number 8 episode, all jokes aside, was a lot of fun to do as it, uh, I mean, Future Beast. Let's talk about Future Beast briefly because I, I want to keep up the gimmick that I don't know what that's all about. But um, bringing in the all-new X-Men number 1 material was uh, was really fun because even I had forgotten how early in the X-Men run that was supposed to have taken place. You know? I think I always subconsciously placed Beast's arrival back in the past, somewhere in the 20s or 30s. I never thought it was as early as issue number 8, which is funny for a number of reasons, because uh, I'm not even sure Bendis was able to figure out how briefly they were a team before they were shuffled into the future here, because when he brought them into the present, it was as though they were together for a very long time. And while Marvel time did work differently back then, of course... I think issue five was their one-year anniversary or something like that. So we might be two years into their into their teamdom at this point. Of course, sliding time scale, all that. It was probably like three or four weeks at most. But it's funny. I read or reread X-Men Prime uh, about a week ago. I was uh, waiting for a dentist appointment, and I pulled up X-Men Prime. I'm considering taking a look at the color books again. I'm not sure what form that's going to take, but I, you know, I do want to fill in that uh, that blind spot. And uh, in that, the, uh, the original five, the time-displaced original five, become the X-Men Blue, you know, cast. And Jean Grey is their leader. And Beast mentions something like, oh, it's a long time coming that you were leader. And when you stop to think of it, it's like, well, no. <laughs> I mean, you could feel whatever way you want to feel about Jean being leader, if it's a good thing or a bad thing or an indifferent thing. But a long time coming, no. No, they really haven't been a team that long. They were pulled out of the past in X-Men number eight. You know, and again, sliding timescale, who knows, but uh, with all that aside, uh, yes, covering X-Men number 8 the way that we did here on the show was a lot of fun, and it, uh, I had to actually reel myself back, because I didn't know how far I was going to go with that gag, I mean, for all I know, that was going to be like a 7 hour episode where I just covered everything, and uh I mean you never know, it might uh there might be a remastered edition at some point in the uh foreseeable future. But uh thank you so much for uh taking the time to listen and write in, Joe. It really, really means a lot to me. Next we got a letter from Jeremiah who's talking about episodes twenty-six and twenty-seven of the show, which were uh, X-Men nineteen and twenty, so the final Stanley issue and uh, the first Roy Thomas issue. Jeremiah says, Chris, still enjoying the show, and I wanted to comment on a couple of things from the recent episodes. In X-Men number 19, Stanley's last issue, he introduces the mimic. I thought it was a really well-done story, at least compared to some of the others. Like the issue with The Stranger, it's a one-shot where a lot happens. And yes, I know a lot happens in all these stories, but this one felt more in-depth to me. We get a new character and villain, one remarkably powerful. There's some good story with him meeting the different X-Men, his backstory, his moving in, etc., Sure, it's all contrived Silver Age nonsense. Beneath it all, though, I think there are some really good points. I mean, if Stan had left the ending a little more nebulous, rather than having Chuck save the day and put an end to it all, you really could have gone back to that Mimic well quite often. And you're right, yeah, they uh, they really could have done more with the Mimic. They will eventually do some more with the Mimic, probably 10 or 15 issues from now. I think, uh, I think it's in the early 30s that the Mimic will make his uh, his comeback, and I think it'll be at the behest of Professor X I don't remember the finer details of it But I know he does Become an X-Man I, I don't know the ins and outs of the story It's been at least 20 years Since I've read it But uh, we will get there We will get there soon enough And um, yeah having having Chuck come in to save the day I mean that's just the uh, That's the Stan Lee Formula for X-Men comics It's something we've talked about a lot in the show It's like you have the X-Men do their thing They come up just short Professor X, you know, you know, does the ding-a-ding-a-ding, wriggles his nose, and everything is, uh, everything's fine. You know, he fixes everything. Jeremiah continues. There could have been a series of stories with him trying to kidnap some of Marvel Universe's top scientist characters, like Reed Richards or Tony Stark, to get him to finally fix that machine that would make his powers permanent. You could have sent him to supervillain prison, where he takes one of the powers of the other prisoners, and they all break out. I just think with a little effort they could have used the Mimic more effectively, like they did with Magneto and the Blob, and you get my point. I know there's really no reason to quibble about this stuff now, I just thought this story particularly had a lot of good material and possibilities. It's the kind of story that my brother and I would have read as kids, and we would have made up all kinds of adventures and what-if stories. Oh, I agree 100%. I remember uh, back in my youth... uh, I didn't know much about the Mimic outside of what I saw in a trading card I mean, that, I've said it a few times Even this episode, the trading cards is where I got A lot of my uh, 101 data For these characters And they didn't have a Mimic action figure Because uh, well, Mimic was He was dead and he was staying dead Back in the mid uh, early to mid 90s So I had to go with a Morph action figure. Folks will probably remember Morph from the animated series. He got an action figure, and I think this was around uh, the Age of Apocalypse time where I found out that uh, that Morph was actually the Changeling, and the Changeling, kind of like Mesmero and Mentalo, I kind of conflated the Changeling and Mimic. You know, I kind of uh, made them the same guy and then had this Morph action figure, so Morph became kind of my de facto Mimic character. And I recall crafting some... Uh, well, probably very bad stories but uh, I had fun so that was all that really uh, all that really mattered but yes your point is is very well taken there in the next issue Roy Thomas's unremarkable debut you went in depth on Stanley calling out the competition in the bullpen bulletins personally I'm all for it he's the editor and he's entitled to his opinion about other publishers and the industry as a whole if you're going to publish an editorial page in your periodical I would expect a good editorial comment totally agree hundred percent. Jeremiah continues If you think the guys at DC are publishing dreck Then say so, give them what for Think the folks at Harvey are ridiculous Trying to publish the five millionth issue of Sad Sack (laughs) With nothing but one page gags That are a waste of paper and ink Tell them And oh jeez, those Sad Sacks I still see those things in the quarter bins Uh, Anytime I go to a uh, cheapo bin There is a stack of Sad Sacks in there And it's definitely the kind of book That I see Stan kind of lashing out at here. Uh, Jeremiah continues, I think that if there's going to be news and commentary page in a comic where Stan tells us about all the new comics to buy, if he wants to tell us why he we should not buy those other comics, then that's perfectly acceptable. Whoever was in the EIC position over at DC could have had the same kind of relationship with the fans that Stan had if they wanted to, but that wasn't really how DC or the other companies did business at the time. Stan was front and center for the product and the fans So as far as I'm concerned, he was allowed to use his pulpit as he saw fit And I agree 100% uh, Stan was the face of uh, Marvel Comics The voice of Marvel Comics And DC really didn't have that I think they'd tried doing that with uh, Julia Schwartz But it, it would never came off the same as Stan, you know Julia Schwartz was never, you know, for lack of a better term, family Stan always felt like like a pal you know, a, f- a family member. Where folks over at DC felt like executives, like stuffed shirts. You know, like who's gonna who's gonna want to talk to Mort Weisinger? Certainly. Certainly not me. That dude sounds like a jerk, right? Um, but I definitely agree with you here. Stan was doing something that none of the other publishers were gonna do. This he was changing the dynamic between between fans and professionals. Uh, f- you know, I mean. We can discuss whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, especially as we move into you know the present. But let's not. <laughs> um, but Stan was uh, dropping truth bombs here. He was being upfront with his uh, opinions on the rest of the industry. And hey, more power to him. I'm all in for it, and I'm looking forward to uh, I'm looking forward to more for sure. It's stuff like that that makes the bullpen bulletins page so much fun to cover, and. Uh, I think it's one of the things that make this show unique, you know, in that we do cover all that gestalty goodness. It honestly wouldn't surprise me if folks just listened for the back matter, <laughs> you know, not caring about the X-Men story. And, hey, if that's the case, that's cool, too. Um, definitely, if that's what you're doing, let me know. <laughs> I'd love to hear from you. But that's going to do it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason, feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to Weird comics history at gmail.com. You can call into the X Labs voicemail hotline at 623 396 jerk. For blog posts and show notes, you can head to chris's on Our little Facebook group is 90s X Men. And for the entire archives, you can head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Available everywhere the internet aggregates noise. But that's going to do it for today. I would like to thank you all so much for sharing your time with me as we take this. Weird little sidebar Into the mutant menace of Mentalo I hope you had as much fun with it As I did, and until next time As always, I'll talk to you again Real soon, see ya This is Chris, welcome to episode 30 of The Essential X-Lapsed Where it's a, a very, very early morning recording um, Not that anyone would know that if I didn't uh, just say that But uh, yeah, gotta gotta get this in early today uh, don't have a dentist appointment, thankfully But uh, the wife and I are going to be going up to the mountains today She wanted to take a, uh, a day trip Which, I mean, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out That means that we went on the trip Yesterday, so hopefully we had a good time And uh, I didn't get too tired driving for many, many hours Whatever the case, it looks like it's going to be like 25 degrees cooler up there And uh, there actually is a comic store that's open four hours a day And uh, a used bookstore that I've never been to So hopefully I'll be coming back with some uh, some treasures worth sharing it's, it's always kind of exciting when you discover a new comic store, right? I remember as a kid... Like, you'd always think that everything you wanted that your local store didn't have would be at that one that was just out of reach, you know? And sometimes it was a disappointment when you actually made it there, and other times it was like, hey, you know, this is some different stuff, some stuff that I don't usually see. So fingers crossed that uh, that there'll be something something worth getting up there. But uh, enough about my day. Let's get into today's book here. Thankfully, it's, a, it's another... Uh, fake-ass vacation episode for me It's a uh, more Mentalo, so there isn't a whole lot to say uh, Let's get into it Strange Tales 142, March 1966, cover date This is the, uh, the second and penultimate chapter of the Mentalo trilogy the story's called Who Strikes At? Shield Written and edited by Stan Lee Pencils Jack Kirby Inks Mike DiMio Letters Artie Simic Colors uh, the gremlins in the bullpen Cover price, 12 cents. Now, I would like to say we pick up right where we left off, but, uh, but I can't. <laughs> For a minute, I actually thought I started reading the wrong issue here. Uh, we open, we've got a giant robot running amok at S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, firing off gas grenades, lasers, uh, just making a real mess of things. It's allegedly the, uh, the Wild Bill robot, and uh, rumor has it nothing can get past it. You know, if it wasn't malfunctioning like it is right now. And, oh, by the way, S.H.I.E.L.D. still stands for Supreme Headquarters International Espionage Law Enforcement Division. So that has not changed within the month, right? Now, from here, we get a page of dial-turning action. Like, literally, a S.H.I.E.L.D. scientist starts spinning some dials on the Kirby Tech Wall O-Dials to finally bring the Wild Bill bot to a halt. Now, Fury, he's already hit the deck here. He's on the ground. And as the dust settles, he wants to get the name of the Nudnik, who okayed this wild Bill Robot before Tony Stark had a chance to give it the once-over. Then, uh, Fury and the Geeks are joined by some MP-looking fellas. Uh, They've stormed into the room after hearing the fracas, and they assume that, perhaps, the dread menace of Mentalo was the cause of it. So I guess we are reading the right issue. Now, Nick scoffs at the thought, even though when we wrapped up last issue, he was certain that Mentalo was the most dangerous man alive. Now, he is sure at this point that Mentolo is just some phony cornball and not much of a threat. He then heads into the ESP division lab where Dr. Nordstrom is tickling his tinker toy. And those are Nick's words, not mine. Um, I can translate for you, though. Uh, Nordstrom is adding a Stark Tech automatic encephalogram, encephalogram, I think that's the word, inducer into the brainwave stimulator. So this is so the ESP team who are hooked up to that crazy machine with the blinders They can project what they perceive mentally onto a convex screen So everyone can see it And as luck would have it, no sooner do they hook this thing up Than the espers get a bead on Mentalo Don't know exactly where he is though, he's swimming underwater Now Fury is very amused by this And he suggests that this show is almost as good as the Flintstones So uh, well, how about we join Mentalo? And it's uh, worth noting, since the espers cannot project sound, Fury and company can only see the images without any sort of context clues, right? But we are reading a comic book, so it's almost like we have super-esper powers, right? So let's do it. Mentalo, he's underwater trying to locate the Fixer. Now, the Fixer has hidden himself in an underwater base that has been protected by all manner of booby traps. Well, the thing of it is, Mentalo's mind-reading powers allow him to swiftly navigate the deadly obstacle course. I'm not sure how that works. Um, can he read Booby Trap's minds? I, uh, far be it from me to question his methods here. Uh, anyway, Mentalo finds his way into the underwater base, and he introduces himself. Fixer is stunned, claiming that only a mind-reader could ever find him in his secret base, which is, you know, kind of the kind of the gag here, I guess. Back to Fury. Now, he sees Mentalo and the Fixer having their powwow, but, as mentioned, he can't hear what they're saying to one another. Now, Fury also claims to have heard of the Fixer, even though I'm pretty sure his first appearance was last issue, at least that's what the Marvel Wiki says, and uh, we know that we can take anything we read there to the bank, so... Anyway, Fury, being the level-headed strategist, and perhaps even a mind reader himself, immediately knows that the Fixer and Mentalo are going to team up and try to take down S.H.I.E.L.D., Uh, Maybe he's a lip reader, Uh, I don't know Oh, and it's also worth noting that we get our third Tony Stark name drop in five pages here When Nick compares the Fixer's genius to that of Stark's Now Nick, he ain't too worried, he's sure they're gonna beat the baddies to the punch But Doc Nordstrom isn't so sure, after all, they could be anywhere All they know is that they're somewhere underwater and that's all it takes for Nick to change his tack here. He thinks to himself, uh, well, I guess we're gonna have to wait for the bad guys to strike first, which is, uh, what you always want your, uh, your field commander to say. He then enters a sparring room where a bunch of shirtless shielders are playing, uh, American Gladiators. Um, now they've got these, like, weird gadgets that, uh, broadcast inaudible frequencies to upset their opponents' nervous systems. Now Fury gives it the thumbs up, but he kind of barks at them at the same time Because he's he's very stressed out, you see And even though this nervous system disruptor gimmick is super cool It won't be of any use against Mentalo So I guess Mentalo doesn't have a nervous system then Okie doke um, Fury then heads into the communication section of S.H.I.E.L.D. Where he's uh, literally adorned with an intercontinental telephone hookup It's like he's wearing a suit of phone Like, phone receivers as collar lapels and everything It's insane, it's really just like, uh If Jack Kirby were to, you know, um, invent the phone This is what it would look like And I mean, this is Jack's art, of course Now, he calls into somewhere uh, Basically to goad the readers into picking up Tales of Suspense number 75 now, he speaks about something called Inferno 42 And someone called Betrak Ziliber Who is making his debut fighting Captain America over in suspense So, uh, great plug, Stan I, I, I mean, I mean, Nick Anyway, back to the story The Fixer and Mentalo are barreling towards S.H.I.E.L.D. HQ in the think tank Well, no, I, I wish it was a think tank It's actually a, and I mean, this is the technical term uh, the, A through-the-ground tank Okay. Oh, and we also get our fourth Tony Stark name drop in 6 pages here. The Fixer mentions that he's getting help from a group that he only refers to as them. Mentalo, the mind reader, isn't sure who he's talking about. The Fixer laughs that Mentalo might never know that information. But like he's he's a mind reader. He he read the mind of of Booby Traps like 3 pages ago. He can't read uh, I mean, that's his only gimmick. Oh well. Mentalo curbs the conversation, as he's getting a mental impression that there's danger up ahead, so he can read the mind of a wall, apparently. And he's right, uh, so long as you consider a thick concrete wall to be a danger. Anyway, the baddies part there through-the-ground tank, and they try to figure out their next course of action, and it turns out that the Fixer's got it well under control. Now, he's going to use his turbo blowers to create a Jericho tube effect, which will knock down the walls, you know, biblically speaking And so, that's exactly what he does He blows into this thing, the walls just come tumbling down So now, they're inside S.H.I.E.L.D. HQ I gotta say, the first time I read through this The coloring is very flat And the backgrounds are very, very sparse I mean, there's nothing in the background So for a moment, I thought we were still underwater Like, it's baby blue outside And there's absolutely nothing in the background So... For all I know, they were underwater. They're not, but it looks like it. Now, the Fixer pulls a large machine out of his back pocket. It's a static distorter, which will shut down all communications in the area. And what do you know? It works. Now, we see that the Shieldsters are attempting to use their staticky FaceTime uh, machine devices to chat up Nick Fury, and it cuts out. So, communications done be blocked. We next shift over to Fury and Company, who are wearing, like, weird fishball helmets. Well, maybe less fishball, more, like, magic bullet blender cup helmets. It's, like, kinda... If you've seen a magic bullet cup, it's it's that, basically. Now, this definitely didn't help my perception that they were all underwater, by the way, because, I mean, they're wearing... Perhaps they're wearing breathing apparatuses, I don't know. Anyway... The good guys spring a trap on the interlopers, and it's uh, one of those, like, walls-closing-in types of, uh, of traps, right? And I f- tell you what, when I was a kid, that was, like, one of my biggest fears, like, uh, seeing the trash compactor scene in Star Wars, you know? It's like, what would you do in that sort of situation? It's uh, something that stuck with me and really left an impression. I don't know why I was so scared. It's not like I'm going to run into that in, in the real world, but, uh, yeah, what are you going to do? So, yeah, the Fixer and Mentalo are about to be crushed. And, for whatever reason, the Jericho Tube will not affect these walls closing in. Now, thankfully, Mentolo is able to mentally sense the weakest spot in these closing in walls. And again, I'm not sure how this works. Is he reading the mind of a wall again? Uh, Anyway, he places a mechanical radar crab on this weak spot, which somehow produces a radioactive isotope that eats through the wall. What now? (laughs) And I gotta tell you, these guys got deep pockets. I don't know where they're pulling these gimmicks out of, but uh, they've got them. Anyway, the baddies step through the hole in the wall, likely breathing in all that radioactivity in the process. Once through, Mentalo warns that they gotta stop, because he can now mentally sense that there's hidden armaments in yet another wall. And what do you know, a panel opens up on a nearby wall, revealing a half-dozen stun guns, so Mentalo can now read the minds of guns. Now, lucky for the bad guys, the Fixer just so happened to have a vibro missile deflector in his back pocket. I tell you, deep pockets. Now, while he shields them from the stun guns, Mentalo fires a grenade at the salvo of stunners, blowing it up real good. So, the baddies can continue their approach, and they do approach one final door. And when they get there, Mentalo consents Fury and Company on the other side. And I tell you what, now that makes sense, considering his powers. Uh, You gotta assume that Fury and even Dum-Dum have minds that can be read, right? And so, Fury and the Shieldsters raise their rifles in preparation to perforate the geeks. Only the Fixer had a pair of anti-grav propellants in his pocket, and so the dirty duo fly overhead as they make their grand entrance. Now, Fury and the gang, they fire anyway. They, They shoot their guns anyway, wildly missing both of the bad guys. And then the Shieldsters start dropping like flies. Now, you see, the Fixer is using neutrino shells, which release something called Element Z. Now, this can seep its way through any armor and or magic bullet blender cup, which, I tell you what, that's pretty convenient. So, mentalo and the Fixer, they've taken down Shield, and they save Nick Fury for last. And while he lay unconscious, they affix an electronic mask to his face, which will alter the cerebellar pattern of his brain which will leave him subservient to our villains. And that is how we leave it. Next time out, we end the monumental Mentalo trilogy. So let's talk about this uh, this short story here. Um, I tell you what, when I discovered that this Mentalo trilogy was a thing, and that it was occurring in a uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. strip, I, I, was, I, I was conflicted. You know, I was a little bit excited to perhaps broaden my horizons and and read something I never read before, but at the same time I was a bit trepidatious that uh, this was going to be insanely boring because you know I'm the war books, the shield stuff that that really doesn't uh, rock my socks, and I mean I've been I've been upfront about that as we've been going through these programs, so I was uh, kind of. Wishy-washy about it Like, I wanted to do it for completionism But at the same time, it's like, well Huh, can I can I just let this slide And not do it? Because I was not interested In reading anything about uh, Nick Fury and his Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And I tell you what The one thing that this story has not been Is boring I mean, it's nonsensical It's silly, for sure I mean, silly is kind of the uh, Catch-all descriptor for these books, right? But, uh I'm having a, a great time with this. This is just so, um, I don't want to say mindless, but, I mean, it really helps if you don't think too hard about these. Like, I had my fun going through the synopsis here, kind of poking fun at, uh, you know, these the deep pockets that the bad guys have, which is something we're not supposed to think about, right? I mean, that's just silliness. <laughs> if you If you look at a character who's just, you know, wearing a regular outfit and somehow they're able to pull... You know, all these huge guns and all these big devices out of nowhere, out of thin air. I mean, it'd probably best serve us to just disengage the uh, the more logical parts of our mind and uh, just let it happen, right? Just don't think too hard about it. I think my problem is that I came up during a far more cynical time in comics. You know, I came in where Rob Liefeld would draw someone with a gun five times the size of their body that they didn't have the panel prior, right? They somehow manifested a, you know, 300-pound hand cannon, you know? And that's something that we accepted it then, but as we became far more intellectual, uh, as as comics enthusiasts as a whole, as we approached the turn of the century... That's when we all started to, like, see ourselves as being a lot smarter than we used to be And we would point out these things it's Like, well, hey, how how did Cable get that gun? It's like, well, we didn't think about it back in 1991 But now that it's 1999 and we're so much smarter than we were back then Well, now, now it's cool to make fun of that kind of thing And I tell you, I'm not putting myself above that fray Because I'm sure I was right there with uh, those people making fun of that early 90s stuff Because it was kind of the thing to do I think we're a uh we're a very self-congratulatory fandom at times uh, especially when we're overcorrecting or just correcting course maybe I don't know if it's overcorrection but it is a uh like a shift in how we kind of view and receive these things uh, you know I, I mean you don't need me to go through the history lord knows I've done it <laughs> more than enough on this channel but even with all that said uh I had a really good time with this issue uh, writing up the Starting up the synopsis was just a lot more fun than I was expecting Like, just all the silliness that I, I got to point out here Like, Nick Fury kind of changing his mind on a dime here It's like, hey, we'll beat them No, no, we won't Oh, okay, I guess we won't Such a dramatic shift in attitude in, like, the course of one panel I, I just, I thought that was adorable <laughs> um, Mental reading the minds of inanimate objects is... Just hysterical Especially when he can't read the mind of his partner, the Fixer When he wants to find out who them are It's just insane And of course there are the immensely deep pockets of our bad guys Which uh, is, I mean that just tickles me more than it should And this is uh, one of those situations where It's like the the Silver Age silliness, right? Uh, the story of like Lex Luthor spending Five billion dollars creating a robot So he could break into a bank and steal 50 grand You know, the silliness there We've got the fixer in Mentalo, who, I mean, from all accounts here, should be able to do whatever the hell they want and could be living the life. But instead of robbing banks or taking over small countries, they want to take over S.H.I.E.L.D. I mean, let's play that out, right? So they, let's say they win. Let's say they win. What exactly do they win? They, they run S.H.I.E.L.D. And they still have to answer to people who are probably going to take them out. I don't know, just more stuff I don't think we're supposed to think about. But, um, you know me, the uh, the cynical part (laughs) will uh, never completely uh, let go. But I think that's about all I have to say about this story. Though I probably should say a thing or two about the art. You all know by now uh, my thoughts on Jack Kirby's art. I I go kind of hot and cold on it. Uh, In seeing his X-Men work... I wasn't the hugest fan of it. It felt very much like uh, the thing he would get to, and I mean, I'm projecting here completely, but it felt like it didn't get as much care as the Fantastic Four, say. But seeing here in this S.H.I.E.L.D. story, all the fantastic Kirby tech, the silly phone outfit that Nick Fury's wearing, uh, you can't not love it, right? It's just really, really good stuff, really fun and imaginative, and I couldn't see it being done by anybody other than, uh, than Kirby, so... Definitely think he's well suited for this kind of story And I definitely appreciated seeing his work here But I think that is all I have to say about this story I'm very excited to get to the, uh, the senses shattering conclusion (laughs) Which, uh, I guess we'll see if it truly shatters our senses But, uh, that'll be a discussion for another day Now before we get out of here, let's do some shout-outs Uh, these are the folks who took the time to click the little heart Or the thumbs up or the little swirly thing to, uh Promote, share, and signal boost This little program And I tell you what, the Return of Essentials uh, Got a much better uh, reception Than I was expecting And a much better reception than than usual I guess uh, changing it up every once in a while Is uh, more exciting, right? <laughs> if there's one thing I can say about the X-Labs branding is that it's, uh, it's Very samey, you know So folks might think they're seeing the same thing over and over again Though... That doesn't stop them from sharing it when you know the 15 or 16 people a day share Batman and the Outsiders number one's cover or uh, the Jim Lee X-Men number one cover. But uh, hey, I'm not putting myself in that same uh, rarefied air. But let's get into the shoutouts. You're on Twitter. I want to thank Ed Moore, Dan Films, Jeremiah, Tribal, Chris Bailey, Dave Schultz, Walt Neeland, Kevin ray Between the Pages blog, Gabriel, and Joe Crawford. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Chris Bailey, Pat Sampson, Jacob Jones, Jeremiah Jones, Jesse D. Young, Walt Nealand, and Billy D. Thank you all so much for helping the show out. And there were some new names in there, so hopefully uh, you gave the show a shot, and I really hope you enjoyed it. And if so, I would uh, love to hear from you, which I suppose is a uh, decent enough segue. (laughs) You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Or you can leave a message on the X Labs voicemail hotline at 623 396 Jerk. Now, for blog posts and show notes, you can head over to Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group, which uh, I guess Facebook is putting in some changes in groups right now. Uh, the group is 90s X Men, 90s s X Men, no hyphen, no spaces. I guess you don't have to join groups to comment in them now. I don't know how that's going to work, but. Uh, Hey, if you, were, uh, if you have trouble with commitment like I do And you just want to, like, say a few words You're always welcome Everybody's welcome to, uh, to discuss whatever the hell you want Over at 90s X-Men on Facebook Finally, for all the Chris and Reggie audio archives Including all the X-Labs programs Over 300 episodes of this uh, family of shows You could head to chrisandreggie.podbean.com And, of course, that is available everywhere The internet aggregates noise and sounds And I haven't asked folks to spread the word in quite a while, but uh, if you do enjoy what you hear, or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to spread the word, share the show, maybe tell a friend or two. It really, really helped me out, and it really helped the show. But with all that out of the way, uh, all that's left to do is say thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me, and until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya! How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 31 of The Essential X-Lapse, where we're just about to take the exit off the beaten path, back onto the beaten path, but uh, we still have one chapter to go in the uh, senses-shattering uh, Mentalo trilogy. And uh, I hope you've all been enjoying this little trip as, uh, as much as I have, because... I tell you what, with all sincerity, this has been a very fun story to cover here. Not one that I would have ever saw us covering on the show, or me covering, period, or even just reading. And I'm just so happy that we did it, because, uh, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. Um, but before we get into it, I, I come to you with some news. Um, I mentioned, uh, last episode that I was going up north to the mountains, and while I was up there, I went to the one comic shop in northern Arizona. And, well, uh, as comic shops tend to be nowadays, uh, The amount of comics in there was uh, sparse, I guess, relatively speaking. Not a whole heck of a lot, but I did find the first three official X-Men indexes that Marvel put out in around, uh, oh boy, I had them right in front of me a minute ago, but I don't anymore. Probably the mid to late 1980s. They were, uh, maybe you'd call them prestige format. They have a spine. They have a thicker cover. They're pretty neat to look at Um, Full page uh, spreads of the covers And some synopsises But the reason that I made sure to grab them Was uh, because it would help us Track where these characters go Because in some of the pages it'll be like Okay, for this character, their next appearance is in Such and such book And as you know Especially, you know, going through this mental thing, you know we go off the beaten path here This is going to be like an all-encompassing sort of thing for the Silver Age into the Bronze and Modern Age of the X-Men As long as the show keeps going, that is So, I grabbed these things so I could better gauge where we're going to be going See what our trajectory is, see where we're going to need to pop into an issue of Fantastic Four Or Avengers, or Captain America, or even, you know, Amazing Spider-Man And there's going to be plenty of that stuff in the future here Which brings me to what I'm trying to report here I'm taking the scenic route and I apologize But uh, I was trying to figure out when we were going to reach Giant Size You know, Giant Size number one And when I started this show, I figured it would be episode 67 Right, it would be right after X-Men 66 And we were just going to hit the ground running Into the international team, into the Claremont run All that good stuff But no, no, it's not going to be episode 67 Um, And as we started introducing you know, these off-the-beaten-path episodes here, the appearance in Fantastic Four, and it's going to be upcoming visits into Avengers books, uh, the Strange Tales stuff, I figured, okay, maybe it'll be episode, I don't know, 75 or 80, right? You know, fitting in right around there. And, uh, again, no. (laughs) Um, I actually went through several wikis, several fan sites, uh, a whole bunch of uh, very informative places to see what the... uh, what the gap looked like You know, the gap between X-Men 66 and Giant Size X-Men All the guest appearances All the, the focuses on the particular characters And, well, um, if my math is right And it very well might not be um, Giant Size X-Men number one The episode of Essential X-Lapsed Will be episode 124 And I mean, I'm looking at it right now um, On my little Excel spreadsheet uh, The last issue of X-Men uh, number 66 Is going to be Around episode 82, right? And then um, from 83 to 123 are all the in-between issues here. Uh, there's there's some crazy stuff in here, and uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it might be a little frustrating that we're, you know, taking so long to get to giant size, but, uh, I mean, these are stories, I've read a lot of these stories, but uh, a lot of them I haven't read either, and I'm assuming that I'm not alone in that. So... If we make it that far, uh, this will be a learning experience for all of us, and I tell you, just looking at these high numbers, I, uh, I can't wait to get there, and I hope you feel the same way. Now on that note, how about we waste another episode on something that's not X-Men? <laughs> Let's finish up the Mentalo trilogy. This is Strange Tales number 143, April 1966, cover date. Stories called To Free a Brain Slave, written and edited by Stan Lee. Pencils, Jack Kirby with Howard Purcell. Inks, Mike DiMio Letters, Artie Simic. Colors, uh, only their hairdresser knows for sure Cover price, 12 cents American Oh, and before we get into it One more thing about the countdown to Giant Size That doesn't include Hidden Years So, uh, if we were to include Hidden Years Um, we'd be close to, like, episode 150 But I don't know that we're gonna do that I do have a plan for Hidden Years That I will, uh, hopefully be sharing soon enough here There's, there's something, uh, that I'm Considering doing here Which uh, may be very stupid But uh, hey, it's not the first time for me Anyway, with all that out of the way Let's get into the senses Shattering conclusion here Now this time out, we actually pick up right where we left off If you remember last chapter, it was kind of Nebulous where we picked up But uh, here we've got Nick Fury And he is a brain slave of Mentalo and the Fixer Now Mentalo giddily prepares To announce this fact to S.H.I.E.L.D. And the Fixer is all like Well, after all the work I did, you better announce it so that makes me think that maybe we got a little bit of a schism brewing between our uh, bosom buddies here. Anyway, Mentolo informs the Shieldsters of the Sitch and commands them to lay down their arms. Dum-Dum is all, oh, hell nah. And instead, he and the howling Shield Mandos head to a secret, camouflaged, air-conditioned tunnel at the airport, which is pretty crazy. Now, this takes them to the main arsenal depot of Shield, where we see the man who was name-dropped like a half-dozen times last issue... He's here working on a gigantic machine in order to counteract Mentalos mental mishigas here, and uh, that man, of course, is Tony Stark. Now, the giant golden machine here makes me think that S.H.I.E.L.D. is, uh, like, readying to take on Hal Jordan back in the Silver Age. But, nah, nah, it's a neutralizer, which will come into play later on in a way that I don't think anybody, even Stan Lee, could have seen uh, coming. Uh, Stan's kind of riding by the seat of his pants here is what I'm trying to say, and it'll make more sense as we get there. Anyway, Tony hops on a cute little scooter and is taken to the ESP division of S.H.I.E.L.D. There we see our ESP team, and they're hooked up to that brainwave stimulator machine with the blinders over their eyes. And I tell you, this scene gets a little bit creepier each time we see it. I mean, there's nothing inherently creepy about it except that their eyes are blacked out, but... I oh, know, there's just something unsettling about it. I, I think, uh, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll share a picture of it. I, I think it's on one of the covers of the books that we're looking at, so take a look at it. It's, uh, it's a little, uh, a little weird. A little bit unsettling. Now, um, this gang here, they're not doing S.H.I.E.L.D. much good at the moment, because the baddies are wearing scramble helmets, and are therefore blocking their probing peepers. Now, Tony arrives, and he asks Nordstrom for a sit-rep, and in so doing, becomes so excited that his heart begins to beat out of his chest. And so, yeah, he's got to sit down for a moment Of course we know Iron Man has that heart issue Uh, Nordstrom informs Stark that he is a doctor And asks if he could take a look at his chest And Tony refuses, of course, which, duh Meanwhile, our baddies are cooking up a miniature H-bomb Okay, a hydrogen bomb, okay Now, Mentalo, he's kind of surprised that the Fixer had one of these in his pocket all along And, I mean, we talked about this last episode Deep, deep pockets on these villains and he asks where the Fixer got it. Now, the Fixer replies that he got it from, quote, them. But he won't say who them is. And this seems to be the only case where Mentholo is unable to read a mind. Um, I mean, last issue, he read the mind of a friggin' wall. So yeah, this is kinda sloppy. Though, I guess in fairness, the Fixer is wearing a scramble helmet for now. I, I don't know. Anyway, the Fixer finishes fixing the H-bomb and straps it around Fury's wrists, even going so far as to weld the fastening bits together, and, uh, I'm not sure you want to be wielding, like, a torch around a hydrogen bomb. I mean, I'm no rocket surgeon, but, uh, that just doesn't seem wise. Now, as the Fixer does his thing, he and a low-bicker some more about who played the bigger role in this caper, so, uh, can you feel the tension? It's, uh, it's building. So once Nick is strapped and secured to the H-bomb, they remove his brain-slave mask, knowing full well that he's going to be compliant as to not, you know, blow up half the city. Now, the first thing Nick does is ask for a stogie. And as Mentalo can read the mind of Fury's desk, he knows that it's not booby-trapped. So Fury gets his cigar is what, I'm, you know, what we're getting at here. And again, uh, do we want to be lighting cigars literally inches from a hydrogen bomb? You know, as I was putting together the notes here, I'd actually stop and Google it. Like, is hydrogen flammable? And the answer is yes, especially if confined to an enclosed area, like, you know, Nick Fury's little office. So, oh well, oh well. Like I said, I'm not a rocket surgeon. This is just Wikipedia stuff. It could be completely wrong. Anyway, Fury then starts singing a song in his head. And that song is Over There by George M. Cohen, 1917. Well, he's sort of singing it in his head. Uh, It's most definitely supposed to be that song, like the Johnny Get Your Gun, you know. But uh, Stan and Nick don't know the words to it. (laughs) It's a little bit off. And uh, this was sung by Bill Murray, by the way. Just not that Bill Murray. So uh, Nick's singing, which is a signal to the ESP team. And what do you know, they actually pick up on it. Dr. Nordstrom turns to Tony Stark and asks what their next move ought to be. Tony radios the assault force, executing Plan D. And I, I, I don't want to nitpick, but I thought Mentolo and the Fixer jammed all of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s communications. I thought that was like a big deal last episode. Um, maybe it wears off. I don't know. Well, from here, we see Plan D in action, and it's a very specific maneuver, as we're about to see. And I mean, like, every star in the sky has to align in order for Plan D to be uh, something that will be uh, relevant and useful here. So what it is, is we see two S.H.I.E.L.D.sters in scramble helmets of their own. They sneak up behind the Fixer and Mentalo, and they fire two capsule darts into the back of both of their helmets. Now, from these capsules seeps a liquid that makes their helmets hotter with every passing second. I mean, why didn't they just blow their brains out? I mean, they were there, they had a clear shot at the back of their head, Oh well, oh well. Now, since these helmets are heating up, Fixer and Mentalo take them off. Of course, that leaves them wide open for the ESP team to zap them with an ESP attack. I'm not sure what an ESP attack is comprised of, but we'll allow it. Here's the thing, though. The Espers cannot only target the bad guy, so Fury is getting the brunt of it as well. But since he's strapped to the H-bomb, he dare not shimmy too much. Now, Mentalo at this point begs Fury to call off the psychic attack. And Nick's like, sure, yeah, I'll do just that as soon as you surrender. And they refuse, And then Nick's like, well, have it your way, and he cites that even if he dies, he'll probably win a medal, so uh, it makes no difference to him. And I mean, maybe it should make a little bit of difference, but, you know, I'm not about to argue with a man who's strapped to a hydrogen bomb. So, uh, you remember that big golden neutralizer gimmick that Stark built a little bit earlier? Well, we're about to bring that into play here. Now, Stark uses an X-ray etch-a-sketch to deduce that there is, in fact, a hydrogen bomb in Nick Fury's office. And so he informs the C and G squads that they gotta blast through Fury's wall. And so they do. Now the Neutralizer sizzles its way over to Fury's desk, where it dissolves the H-bomb into what looks like a pile of torn-up newspaper. Mentalo then turns to the Fixer and is all like, you know, hey bro, the jig is up, let's just surrender. The Fixer ain't having none of that kind of talk, though, and instead tosses Mentalo a rifle so they can blast their way out of there. Don't know where he got the rifles, but I'm not gonna question that anymore. And so that's exactly what they try to do. They try to fight their way out. Only, they wind up running right into S.H.I.E.L.D.'s finest. Now, after emptying their rifles in the direction of these weird metronome, like, uh, bike things, uh, the baddies leave themselves wide open to be KO'd by Dum-Dum and the boys. While the Fixer is KO'd, uh, Mentalo simply surrenders and promises to spill every bean that he can. Dum-Dum next runs into Fury's office to check on the colonel, and naturally he's just peachy. He's more ticked off that his cigar got bent than anything else. From here, we head back to the ESP division where the Espers celebrate their victory over the dread Mentalo. Nick and Tony chat for a bit, with the latter still worried about Mentalo menacing them again. To which Dr. Nordstrom tells them that Mentalo's mutant powers have been wiped out. His threat is over forever. So uh, someone get that man into the Crucible ASAP. From here, we get a cliffhanger that'll take us into the next S.H.I.E.L.D. adventure, but since we ain't going to be covering that, we're pretty safe to stop right here. Next episode, we get stupid with Count Nefaria and some of the worst villains you're ever going to want to see. I hope you're looking forward to that as much as I am. I think I am anyway, but uh, we'll get there when we get there. For now, let's talk Mentalo. I think it's pretty clear that he was not intended to be a mutant this early on, um, especially since like his powers fade at the end of the issue. Of course, he will get them back, and uh, he will come around to, uh, I think the next time we see him, or we're not going to see him, but the next time he shows up, will be uh, in a Bronze Age issue of Captain America I want to say I, I could be completely wrong there I did a little bit of research, but it was a few days ago And I suppose I didn't commit it to long-term memory But, uh, yeah, he'll be back um, Either in the late 70s or early 80s And, uh, hey, if the show's still going at that point Maybe we will check back in on him I, I mean, no promises yet But uh, we'll, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it If we get to it Now, the thing I want to talk about here Is the neutralizer right, that's kind of what this issue, this uh, chapter of the Mentalo saga is hinged on here. Tony Stark makes his Neutralizer that's supposed to counteract Mentalo. Mentalo's mind readability, I would assume, because that's that's all he brings to the table. But somehow the Neutralizer is able to deactivate and disintegrate a hydrogen bomb. I mean, they couldn't have been planning that from the start because Tony only found out about the H bomb when he used his electro sketch gimmick to to find out what was in the room. So why was he building a neutralizer? What was the original intent for the neutralizer? Why am I letting this bother me so much? I really don't know. Now, speaking of Tony Stark, he does have a little uh, little heart issue during this uh, during this story, and there's no um footnote. Which I found a little bit odd. Uh, Stan's usually really good about uh, filling folks in on what they might need to know about something. So seeing Tony Stark having to sit down while clutching his chest, you might think there would be a footnote there to let readers of Nick Fury know uh, what's going on with uh, Tony. But then again, I mean, I'm guessing if you're reading Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., you probably are already at least a little bit familiar, passively even, uh, with Iron Man and his, uh, his origin. Now one thing about this story that sticks out even more than the neutralizer is uh is the art. I, I'm I, I you know it's become a meme at this point, but uh, you know, I go hot and cold on Jack Kirby. But if there's anyone out there who doubts Jack's talents or Jack's uh dynamicism, I would show them this, this issue, because it's so imaginative, it's so creative, all the stuff that he that he crafts, like the metronome bike thing, it's like Out of this world, stuff that you would never think of But at the same time It's also very, like, innocent Feeling, it's like something that a kid would make up Because it would make sense to a kid You know, whereas Practically it doesn't make sense, you know, in application It makes zero sense But in the comic you can buy into it You know, that there's going to be a metronome with a little Disc on the top of it that's drawing Enemy fire, so uh, the shieldsters Could be safe Just silly stuff like that, but the way it's drawn it's really it's you can actually see the Kirby magic here, which I mean, only covering the X Men books where, like I said, Jack, I don't want to say he was phoning in the X Men stuff, but it was definitely not his top priority. At least you know I'm projecting here, but it didn't seem like it was. It seemed like uh, like the fulfillment of a of an agreement. You know, he was just doing it because he said he would or something. But here, there's uh, the true Kirby magic. Uh, even let's go into the uh to the brainwave stimulator machine with the blinders. I wasn't kidding when I said that's a haunting image. You know, you have a woman staring right at you, but her eyes are blacked out. Then you have a man on either side of her facing either direction out, and their eyes are blacked out. It's just a very haunting and almost chilling sight. Like, if you were to see that image just in and of itself, you might... I don't know, you might feel a little unsettled. I I know I did. And I tell you, for a story that I was a little bit trepidatious about getting into... um, I had a lot of fun with this, and I think a lot of folks out there will as well. Even if you're, even if, like, Nick Fury ain't your flavor of ice cream, uh, maybe give this a shot. It's, you know, it's on Unlimited. That's how I read it. So it is there. If you have the subscription, there's really no reason not to pop in and spend five minutes with uh, with Mentalo and, and Nick Fury. It was a a really good time, and I'm very happy that we took this sidebar, had a really good time with it. I hope you all did as well, as silly as it was. uh it definitely wasn't boring. It was a lot more fun than I, than I ever thought it would be. But uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue and about this little arc. So let's take a quick dip into the mailbag so I can let you all get on with the rest of your day. <laughs> we're going to start with a letter from Billy D talking about the last couple of episodes here. Billy says, Hey Chris, I'm glad to see Essential X-Labs back. I need to read up on the Fury Shield stuff from this era as well. Now, Mental is a character I'm not super familiar with either, but I enjoyed hearing your thoughts. I'm also loving the letters pages. They are hilarious. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much for the kind words there, Billy. Um, this is a character, Mentalo, who I don't think many of us know a whole heck of a lot about. Uh, like I said a couple episodes back, when I posed the question on you know, various social media platforms about whether or not to do these episodes, one of the uh, main responses I got back was that uh, folks were surprised that Mentalo first appeared in a S.H.I.E.L.D. book. Now, they assumed, since he is a uh, you know a feature character in the SWORD title right now, that he was always an X-Men character. And, I mean, before we did this, I think I was very much in that same uh, wavelength there because, like I mentioned a couple episodes ago, I always conflate uh, Mentolo with Mesmero. <laughs> so uh, I was on a whole different uh, plane of uh, ridiculousness uh, at that point. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, really fun to learn a bit about this guy. Also, fun to learn a little bit more about uh, Silver Age Nick Fury, a, a character who... I had dismissed as just being, you know, not my flavor. And uh, here I am, three story. I mean, it's only three stories, but uh, I enjoyed them. I thought they were a lot of fun. I don't know that I'll move on with the series, but... Uh, and, you know, while on that subject, if you intend to stick around with the Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, strip and you're wondering who Them is, well, I've been looking at future bullpen bulletins here, upcoming ones for uh, future episodes, and uh, Them... Will loom large pretty quick, so uh, it won't you won't be waiting too long to find out uh, who them are. And I tell you, it's always nice to hear feedback on uh, the letters pages and the bullpen bulletins here, because that is a uh, that's some of the fun stuff here. That's some of the stuff that I feel like might make this show. I don't want to say stand out because it's certainly nothing special, but it is unique to the show. I think. And it's something uh, a little bit different than you might get elsewhere. So I, I like being able to share that. I love being able to dig into these questions and just have a really, really good time doing so. Because, like Billy said here, some of these are very, very funny. you got people trying to call Stan out, trying to correct him on science and superhero books. And, oh, it's just, it's just wild, wild stuff. But thank you so much for taking the time to write in, Billy. It really, really means a lot. Next up, Chris Bailey talking about Mentalo. He says, I'm looking forward to part two. I love the first installment of our journey with Mentalo. This is a great idea doing these mini sets of episodes. It gives us a break from the main book, but also gives us a good reason to learn something. These essentials are great podcasting, brother. Well, thank you, brother, for the kind words here. Um, I think I mentioned this to you off the air, but uh, when I was doing the first episode of the Mentalo trilogy, I was wondering if we were going a little bit too far off the beaten path here. Like, who, who's going to... Who's going to associate this S.H.I.E.L.D. story with the X-Men? They're going to think that I lost my mind. But uh, I'm so glad we did it. I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I know I learned a thing or two during this uh, during this little adventure here. Uh, learned a bit about Mentalo. Learned a bit about uh, the you know the seminal months of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's uh, It was a good time. It was a really good time. And uh, thank you so much for the kind words. Now that will do it for the mailbag. Uh, let's do a little bit of shouting out here. Uh, I want to thank all the great folks for uh, helping to um, you know, signal boost, share the show, uh, even just clicking the heart or the thumbs up, whatever you can do to help the show out really really means a lot to me. So on Twitter, I want to thank Schlactapus, Corey Devorkin, Chris Bailey, Professor Allen, Longbox Crusade, Mark Jagger, Evan Bevins, Walt Nealon, The Selling Out Show, Between the Pages blog, The Longbox at Darkness, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Billy D, Joe Crawford, and Lucretia. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Chris Bailey, Walt Nealon, Jesse DeYoung, Jeremiah, Pat Sampson, and Billy Dee. Thank you all so much for helping to raise a little bit of awareness about this show, and also, in so doing, making me feel really good about myself. So thank you so, so much. But that will do it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for uh, any reason, you could find me several different places. You could find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to InfiniteEarths.com. You can join us on Facebook at 90 men And finally, for all the Chris and Reggie stuff, including the complete X-Lapsed family of show archives, you can head over to Chris And like I tell you every time out, you can find that anywhere the internet aggregates noise. So that, my friends, will do it for today, and that'll do it for our Mentalo trilogy. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did, and I want to thank you so much for spending some time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya! This is Chris, welcome to episode 32 of The Essential X-Lapsed Which is a uh, kind of a surprising episode of The Essential x Labs Because I was, I was almost 100% confident that we'd be back into uh, the original recipe X-Lapsed at this point in the month uh, Only my DCBS package has yet to arrive It's been just sitting in various cities and towns across these United States for the better part of two weeks now Seems like every day I check on the status of it it uh, The delivery either goes back a day or it just goes to pending So uh, right now I believe it's been sitting in Phoenix for about four days And it's been pending for, well, about six days So we're uh, we're still sitting in wait here Which I guess that's good news and it's bad news at the same time uh, For folks who want to get right back into the current year stuff uh, Well, sorry, we got more Silver Age and... Uh, For folks out there who don't care for the current day stuff uh, Hey, you're welcome We got some Silver Age stuff to cover So let's get into today's book here Where it's weird, we're officially 10 episodes ahead of the issue number I didn't think it was going to go that way I, You know, when I started this little uh, essential project I never really considered the whole off-the-beaten-path aspect of it And I didn't think we'd be doing that You know, I thought this was just going to be X-Men 1 through 66, then Giant Size, then 94 on. That's what I figured it was going to be, but uh, no, indeed it's not. We have a lot of guest appearances we've covered, and uh, so far we've covered 10. So it's episode 32, issue 22. So let's do the thing here. Uh, This is X-Men number 22, July 1966, cover date. The story is called Divided, We Fall. Story by Roy Thomas. Pencils, Werner Roth as Jay Gavin. Inks, Dick Ayres, Letters, Artie Simek. Colosso, and maybe Colors by Irving Forbush Robotics Incorporated Editor Emeritus, Stan Lee Cover price, 12 cents Now we open, where we open more often than not in these books uh, In the Fantastic Danger Room Where the X-Men are being put to the test against Professor X's most dread creation yet Colosso And I wonder if Colossus ever wound up fighting Colosso Probably not Um, Now this thing is huge and our heroes are not too keen on having to fight it. Kid Cool even appeals to the professor, asking if they can take a written test instead, uh, citing that they're still kind of beat up from their bouts with the Sentinels and Lucifer's big green machines. Now, my question is, why are they still being tested? They graduated, like, 15 issues ago. I don't know. Anyway, let's get on with it. Now, Colosso presents itself, and yeah, it's a gigantic clunky robot with a glowing orb for an eye or a head, I guess, and hypnotic lights flashing from every one of its joints and orifices. Professor X gives the kids five minutes to take the big bot down. Now, Angel makes the first approach and is summarily blasted by the glowing orb. Now, Warren turns out to be paralyzed briefly as he plummets to the floor. Luckily, Gene is able to TK him down softly. Iceman then goes to his other trick that he's got Uh, As we know, Bobby's kind of a two-trick pony at this point He either encases the baddie in a block of ice that they bust out of in the very next panel Or he ices up the ground in hopes that they'll slip and fall This is the latter But it's futile You see, Colosso has been specially made to counteract all of the X-Men's tricks And so it emits a cloud of steam from its booties melting the ice away Cyclops then goes to unload an optic blast, which ricochets off Colosso's chest and nearly fries poor Hank where he stands Speaking of Hank, he then leaps crotch first at the robot, kind of like a uh, Liefeld drawing You know, like where they're like jumping with like their crotch just way, way out there It kind of looks like that, but Colosso ducks Now, you see the problem here? You see the problem we're getting at here? The story is called Divided We Fall, yes? And here, we have the X-Men not working in tandem So I think there's a lesson to be learned here, my friends Uh, And like they said on Sesame Street, cooperation makes it happen So they're going to have to work together to take this bugger down Now Scott takes point and has the team disperse in different directions to confuse the bot But Colosso winds up grabbing him and Jean Thankfully, Cyclops notices that Colosso's glowing orb glows a little bit brighter when it went to nab them and so he deduces that this must be something that they can exploit. And, I mean, duh, right? But in fairness to Scott, this was decades before video games where you'd always aim for the head of the level boss. You know, it's like, where do you aim? If you're fighting Dracula in Castlevania, you're not hitting its stomach. You know, you're jumping up and you're, you're whacking him in the face. So, Scott has Gene Yankoff, Professor X's leg blanket, and it's worth noting he immediately covers his crotch with the big remote control box that he used to activate Colosso. So, I mean, I, I don't want to be crude or nothing, but, uh... Yeah, it looks a little bit suspect. Anyway, Gene then TKs the blanket over Colosso's orb head, which causes the big bot to release them both. Angel catches Scott before he goes splat, and Gene TKs herself to safety. Hank then hops up and ties the blanket tightly around Colosso's orb head. Uh, Bobby then encases the whole thing in ice. And then they do the hit em high hit 'em low sort of thing, where all the X-Men except Cyclops attack the chest area of Colosso, While Slim blasts at the back of its feet Bada bing, bada boom The X-Men, in working together, are victorious Now the strange teens celebrate their victory And then, for the third time in like the past six issues Professor X treats them with a vacation I'm not kidding It's like every time they finish something He's like, I'm sending you on vacation And they all go, yay And, you know Though in fairness, the last couple of times The the vacays got cut short I wonder if the third time will be the charm Spoiler alert, no <laughs> Now, uh, Beast man they immediately know where they're gonna go They're gonna go to Greenwich Village, of course Warren then asks Jean if she wants to have dinner Before her train leaves to visit her sister in Albany And I think this might be the first mention of Jean's sister, Sarah Gray Now, Sarah Gray, for those who might not know It was who Chris Claremont wanted to use an X-Factor Instead of bringing Jean Gray back to life in the uh, mid-80s And uh, Jean, she's down with this dinner here But only if Scott can come along as well now Warren begrudgingly agrees, and shockingly, so does Scott Usually he's like, no, my cursed eyes, I can't do this But this time, he's, uh, he's cool with it Though he does make sure to think about his optic curse And how uh, his love for Gene is one that can never be As the X-Men leave the mansion, we stick around with Charles for a bit Who is suddenly, like, hypersensitive about his handicap He laments the fact that the kids can, you know, all feel the sunshine and the wind on their faces Which, I mean, Xavier could Go outside, yes? Uh, anyway, he's, he's bummed out, that's all I'm saying. From here, we shift scenes to join Count Nefaria, who Stan reminds us hasn't been seen since Tales of Suspense number 68, which was uh, August 1965 cover date, so we're talking less than a year here, so he's not like, uh, you know, really being pulled out of the mothballs. Now, all CF is trying to figure out a way to get his mojo back after his defeat at the hands of Captain America. And after looking at a copy of the Not Daily Bugle, he sees an article about the X-Men, Which asks the question whether they're heroes or villains And so he is struck by inspiration He will enlist the X-Men as allies Whether they want to be or not From here we head to uh, what Stan calls a weird and wacky section of New York City Greenwich Village Now here Hank and Bob are meeting their dates Zelda and Vera Now Zelda shows up right away Hank then thinks he sees Vera, but it turns out to be just a fellow named Waldo with a Beatles mop-top haircut. Unfortunately for Hank, Vera sees him in the midst of this boner and acts like a real jerk about it. Uh, She has literally zero sense of humor. And I think if this were a manga, we'd refer to Vera as a Sundere? Is that how you say that word? I don't know. Anyway, the foursome head to the theater to watch either Goldfinger or Thunderball. Vera asks Hank what he does at his private school. And instead of telling her that he graduated like a year and a half ago He just says he usually hangs around by his feet And as you might imagine, this annoys Vera because she thinks he's being silly Next, we're off to the awkward dinage a trois with Warren, Jean, and Scott Well, the tail end of their dinner, anyway Scott's thanking Warren for treating him and bids his pals farewell for the next two weeks We follow Jean and Warren to his hoopty where uh, she thinks to herself how much she loves Scott And she figures, you know, Warren's no slouch, but he's not Scott. From here, we bounce over to Scott, who's walking next to Central Park. And suddenly, he sees Marvel Girl flying overhead. He goes to give chase, but she disappears. He assumes that maybe he's just got Gene on the brain. Well, he wishes. Then, over to the real deal Gene, who's been dropped off at Grand Central Station. Now she walks past some dorks with a radio, where it's being reported that a flying X-Man was spotted flying over Central Park. And in other news, absolutely nothing, apparently. Jean knows out of the five of them, only she and Warren can fly, and so she figures that maybe she should check into this a little bit closer. Next, we know she's getting out of a cab at Central Park and changing into her work togs. Now, as she walks through the foliage, the trees reach out and grab her. She runs right into the dread... Plant Man and his goons. Now, they spray her with chloroform, and before long, she's out cold. Now this is Plant Man's third appearance And I figure words of warning here for the next several episodes of this show It's like we're heading down a corridor of the crappiest villains (laughs) That we're ever going to meet here It's gonna be a cavalcade of crap Now Plant Man, like I said, this is his third appearance He first appeared in Strange Tales number 113 Where he battled the Human Torch Next he appeared in Strange Tales number 121 Where he battled the Human Torch Now let's bounce back over to Scott here He's now in costume He's still in Central Park, and he just heard Marvel Girl cry out. But he's suddenly distracted by seeing Angel flying overhead. Scott calls out to Warren, but it's as though he's being ignored. Now, speaking of Warren, he's actually still in his car. And as he drives, the radio plays, and he hears the news report of a flying X-Man over Central Park. And so he drops his fancy jalopy in a 24-hour parking lot and takes to the skies to check into this. Once in the park, the Angel runs afoul of... The Scarecrow. Not that Scarecrow. Now, I gotta ask, I always ask this when we have Warren in action here, what is the one thing that Warren's been training his entire life to avoid? Like, every Danger Room session has Warren dodging one main obstacle. Nets, right? He always avoids nets, and then every time he's out in the field, he flies right into a net, and he does the very same thing right here. Scarecrows, goons, and crows tie Angel down. And, and, like, shouldn't the crows be afraid of the Scarecrow? Isn't that kind of in the name? Oh well. Now this is the Scarecrow's second appearance. He first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 51, where he fought Iron Man. Next, we shift over to... I'm guessing either Zelda or Vera's bachelorette Ped? Um, are they roommates? I can't remember. Anyway, Zelda is in the kitchen, slaving away, preparing a meal of soda and chips. Bobby switches on the radio. Uh oh, I wonder what's going to happen now. Third time this issue. Now, Hank suggests that they listen to a Beethoven concert, which really seems to get Vera hot and bothered. I guess as hot and bothered as a uh, mannequin can be, I guess. Now, we know that they're not going to be hearing any Ode to Joys today, though, right? We know what they're going to hear. It's a news report about all the wacky X-Men sightings in Central Park. And so, Hank feigns illness and excuses himself to check into it. Naturally, this ticks off Vera right as she was barely starting to feel like a human being. Now, Bobby gets both girls to himself here, so lucky duck indeed. So shortly, we rejoin Hank in his beastly togs as he arrives at Central Park. He winds up being confronted by... the porcupine. You all familiar with the porcupine? Now, this might just be the worst character design coming out of the Silver Age, and that does cover a lot of ground. He almost looks like an unfinished drawing. It's... bizarre. Anyway, Hank does his best Super Mario jumping on a spiny here, Like he just jumps on this prickly critter. Uh, he winds up bloodlessly piercing his precious tootsies on the porcupine's quills. From here, Hank is tied up and captured by some goons. Now this is the porcupine's fourth appearance, and actually the second time we're seeing him here for the show. He first appeared in Tales to Astonish number 48, where he did battle with the Ant-Man and Wasp. Then in Tales to Astonish 53, where he fought Giant-Man and the Wasp. Next, we saw him among the myriad of baddies during Fantastic Four Annual Number 3. Now, let's rejoin Bobby, who's being referred to as Bobby Blake here, as he's uh, checking into he and Hank's hotel. Now, he's pretty surprised that uh, Hank hasn't beaten him here, and he heads up to their room to check out the TV news. Naturally, they're reporting that Iceman himself was spotted near the lake in Central Park. And so, our youngest X-Man ices up and heads that away. Now, uh, Stan Lee time later, exactly one minute later, he's there and he sees himself ice sliding away. Now, he wonders if this might be some trickery from the blob and or Eunice, but come on, none of them can ice up, right? Anyway, he lands by the lake, where he's attacked by the eel. Now, in this situation, Bobby uses plan A, and he just encases the baddie in ice, which naturally the eel breaks out of in the very next panel. Just then, Cyclops arrives and blasts the eel in the back. But then, the unicorn shows up and makes short work out of the both of them. Now this is the eel's fifth appearance And like the porcupine before, the second time we're actually seeing him here for the show He first appeared in Strange Tales 112, where he fought the Human Torch Then, Strange Tales 117, where he fought the Human Torch (laughs) I mean, we only ever looked at one Torch story for the show I tell you what, that must have been a really repetitive strip, right? I I haven't heard very many good things about it, so I'm assuming it's uh, not all that fondly remembered uh, next, he would appear in Daredevil number six, where he would join the Fellowship of Fear alongside Mr. Fear and the Ox, uh, only to get beat up by Daredevil. And then he would appear in Fantastic Four Annual number three. Now, this is the unicorn's third appearance. He first appeared in Tales of Suspense number 56, where he fought Iron Man, and then he was also at Reed and Sue's wedding. So, all five of the X Men have been accounted for and captured. All that's left now is to deliver them to Count Nefaria and his international crime syndicate known as the Magia. Now, the geeks all report that their assigned captives are, you know, captured, and as requested, mostly unharmed. Though, Cyclops and Iceman were stunned by the Unicorn's dread horn. This actually ticks Nefaria off because he wanted them completely unharmed. This seems like a real picking of nits here, but I guess it does facilitate a bit of a schism between the Magia ranks, and it's pretty clear that the Unicorn and Nefaria are going to be butting heads here. Anyway, from here, we head to a dungeon where the X-Men are all bound, and I tell you, it must be refreshing for them not to be kept in a glass box. Usually that's where they're kept. Nefaria soon joins them and he informs them of his plan. He offers them an alliance with the Magia. Naturally, they decline. Neferi isn't too concerned, however He figures that they'll change their tune after his next trick Where he will literally steal Washington, D.C. And then ransom it back to the United States for $100 million And that is where we leave it So uh, I guess let's talk about it (laughs) Um, uh, The, uh, like, one word comes to mind immediately And that's, uh, actually two words I just can't decide which one takes precedence here One of them is, oof, And the other one is, yikes. Um, We're heading into some pretty lean days here for the Essential X Labs. The the stories we're going to get are going to be really fun to talk about for all the wrong reasons, I think. Um, And the book is going to basically turn into a baddie of the month sort of a situation, which, I mean, this is the Silver Age. It's hard to hold that against it, but there's definitely a bit of an afterthought vibe here for this next stretch of issues. And, uh... Like I said, it's going to be fun to talk about, but probably not for the right reasons. And I feel like it's only going to get sillier as we move forward here. Maybe, maybe this is Roy trying to find his uh, his footing with this uh, with this team here, uh, not really knowing the direction to go, not wanting to just go right back to an old X Men villain. Maybe trying to integrate them more into the Marvel universe here. You know, we've talked a little bit about the fan turn pro phenomenon of the mid '60s here, where we started seeing the first comic book fans become professionals. And it might stand to reason that uh, someone like Roy Thomas might want to incorporate the X-Men more heavily into the shared Marvel Universe by bringing an Iron Man villain in or a Human Torch villain in. Or maybe it's just a matter of uh, bringing some disparate villains together and making bad guy teams, right? Of course, these are all shots in the dark for me. I I don't know what the thought process was behind this uh It just kind of feels like we're in something of a holding pattern. As the X-Men book tries to find its post stanley identity, maybe? I don't know. That's just a feeling I got, and I I really don't have a whole heck of a lot to say about, you know, the first half of the Nefarious story. Other than Roy really stuck to the theme here. You know, the title of this issue, as I mentioned earlier, was, you know, Divided We Fall. And we open with the Colosso thing, where we see the X-Men strike at him individually and they're unable to really do anything about it. So it's only when they're together, working in tandem, is when they're at their most, I guess, capable, right? We do see the uh, Magia geeks come, and they take them all individually, except for, you know, Scott and Iceman. But uh, it's, you know, it plays up that divided-we-fall sort of mentality, which I guess that's kind of cool as a theme that extends to the entire story. Now, if I were more naive, I would assume that this is going to pay off beautifully next issue, But I'm like 80, 90, 95% convinced that it'll end the same way that all X-Men stories end With the X-Men coming up just short and then Professor X sliding in to uh, save the day So I guess we'll see when we get there But uh, I think that's all I got to say about this issue Hopefully there's a little bit more to say uh, after we finish up the second half But uh, with that said, let's visit with the X-Men in the letters page here And we've got... uh, Handful of uh, second writers in here uh, You know me, I, I like to spend my time very efficiently And so, I mean, this is this is so stupid It's almost embarrassing that I did this But uh, I've been putting all of our letter hacks into an Excel spreadsheet Okay, so I can see if uh, people are writing in more than once More than twice You know, I, I'm trying to see who's the most prolific letter hack in our letters pages here Which I mean, I don't know why that tickles me the way it does. It's, it's stupid. It really shouldn't. But uh, whatever the case, I spent like an hour doing it the other day. And I'll continue doing it as we move forward here just to see if... Uh, I don't know if we see any pattern. I don't... I don't it's not important. It's stupid. But uh, let's get into it here. We got Walter in Pennsylvania, and this is his second letter. Now, he was flabbergasted by X-Men number 19. He found it to be completely perfect. Now, X-Men 19 was the mimic issue, remember? He considers the Mimic to be the the best X-Men villain, and while he certainly had the potential to be, he is disappointed that Stan would create such an awesome baddie only to take him completely off the board after one appearance. So I guess the issue wasn't completely perfect then. Uh, Walter is a fan of Magneto, but he assumes that this is a minority opinion, and he hopes that they bring him back soon. And I tell you, it's nice to see that the unpopular opinion phenomenon was around even, you know, 60 years ago. It's funny, like, you'll see on social media or online somewhere, will be like, you know, unpopular opinion time. I really like the character Dazzler. And then, like, 500 people writing be like, yeah, me too, me too. It's like, it's, there, are, there really aren't very many unpopular opinions anymore, especially in a, in a time where everybody has to feel like they are the odd one out or the, the one who can see things no one else can. But uh, anyway, Stan says that the Mimic and Magneto might just come back when we least expect them to, which is to say they both will. Next up, Walter in California, and this is his second letter as well. He says that X-Men number 18 was the best adventure in the X-Men's extracurricular activities. Whatever the hell that means. Uh, He loved the exciting portrayal of Iceman, which evidently made Walter's heart pound and his blood boil. Okay? He says Iceman really came into his own during this story. And Stan, (laughs) he doesn't even take the compliment here. He just makes fun of Walter for his run-on sentences. Great Um, Now Dean in New York This is his second letter as well Now Dean hmm, He's going to philosophize here He's going to break down Professor X's powers He's going to be really, really scientific here And boy, okay Um, Now he uses the overarching term Thought wave energy To explain Professor X's powers But he breaks it down even further To contextualize it Now the first power is a quote Thought bolt which Charles uses on minds. Then we've got mental energy, which is sort of like telekinesis, but not really, though it can affect a sentinel. Third is mental analysis, which is what brand Ech refers to as X-ray vision. Mental analysis and X-ray vision, is that... Okay, now finally is astral image, in which, you know, Professor X can leave his body. Now, Dean claims that Chuck can still use his three other thought wave energy powers while in astral form, but they're not as powerful. Now, Stan, um, he thanks Dean for explaining his own character to him. Which, uh, Stan's a little saucy today, isn't he? (laughs) He's having a little bit of a bad day. Uh, Next up, Don in Texas, and this is his first letter. He thought X-Men number 19 was the best issue yet. He credits Jay Gavin as being the first artist to make Marvel Girl look... Like a girl hmm. He calls out Stan for suggesting that the battle with the Sentinels took a few months Citing that it could only be a couple of days at most I, I don't remember Stan saying that they were fighting the Sentinels for months Then again, I don't remember him not saying it either So, uh, so if there's anyone out there with a better memory than mine um, Let me know and uh, maybe a uh, fake-ass no prize might be headed your way Now, uh, back to Don's letter here. He wants more Gene and Scott romance. He also wants an X-Men annual. He wants all new content in this annual. No reprint. No reprints at all. He says, save that stuff for Marvel's Collector's Item Classics, which, of course, is on sale at your local newsstand, so maybe pick up a copy or four, right? Uh, He wants to know more about each of the X-Men's pasts, and he wants to see a picture of Stan's Pulitzer Prize. Now, Stan suggests he's got loads of Pulitzers, so he doesn't even know which one to take a picture of. And he also apologizes for not being able to fit in an X-Men annual for 1966. He does tell Don to keep an eye out for the upcoming Marvel Superheroes mag, and uh, Marvel Superheroes is what Fantasy Masterpieces becomes with issue number 12. And it goes on to run new material until issue number 20, and then from issue 21 to 105, it's back to reprints. Next, we got a missive from A. George in Florida. He loved X-Men number 19, considers Mimic to be the best villain yet. He suggests that the introduction of this character should be enough to get Brand Ech to give up completely. He loves all of Marvel's output, and he gets a few more digs in at Brand Ech along the way. Stan doesn't take the bait. I guess he's still kind of reeling from being called out for bullying last time out, so he uh, he just thanks A. George for his uh, kind words. Next up, Dexter in Mississippi. This is his second letter. He liked issue number 19, but says it could have been better. He did like Stan plugging his Monsters Unlimited in the splash page. If you remember, Marvel Girl was reading it. He does call Stan out on his pacing. You know, he says that it felt like the first 19 pages made it feel as though this was going to be a continuing story. But then everything was rushed to wrap it up in the final two pages. And I do wonder if this had anything to do with it being Stan's final issue as writer. Maybe. Maybe not. Uh, Dexter thinks it was silly for the mimic to know what it felt like to sprout wings. Which... Is a decent point, though I mean, there are probably a dozen less realistic things In that very story Dex wonders if Stan will ever run out of bullpen bulletins And I can say with certainty That he won't I've got us about shoulder deep in bullpen bulletins From here till the turn of the century And we will cover them all Well, so long as this show is a thing anyway Uh, Stan says that uh, maybe He'll bundle all the bullpens together And sell them for a quarter Calling it Marvel's collector's item bulletins Which... I would probably buy. He then challenges the readers to solve the quandary of what it feels like to sprout wings. Um, I smell a no prize opportunity, real and fake ass. If anybody out there has any insight on how it would feel to sprout wings, let me know. Let me know. And we will uh, we will discuss it. Next up, Christine in Illinois, and uh, well, she's got questions. She wonders why the X Men are still at Xavier's after graduating. Great question. Wonders why the X-Men keep getting sent on vacation Only to have those vacations interrupted She liked to see the X-Men's parents Wants to see Jean used more And liked it when the boys went gaga over her in the earlier issues Wonders if the X-Men have any siblings And wants to see the X-Men's homes Now, Stan ignores the questions And instead comments on how much Christine wrote I tell you, we got some spicy Stan here today, um And that we know, with the power of 60 years of hindsight, that a lot of these questions will eventually be answered. And, uh, well, I just wonder if Christine was still reading when they were. I wonder if this uh, (laughs) reply from Saucy Stan was enough to get her to say, screw this, and maybe go over to Brand Ech. Next up, Jim in Oregon. Or Oregon. I I never know how to say that. I know I... Either way, it it ticked somebody off. Anyway, Jim loved issue number 19, says, The Mimic is the best villain since Magneto. He'd like to subscribe to X-Men, but... But he's waiting for the prices to go down. (laughs) And he wonders why comics are so expensive, at 12 cents per. Um, Stan says he wishes he could lower the prices, but all that stuff is handled by another department at Mighty Marvel. And he suggests that there might just be a spy from brand Ech in that department keeping the prices up. Now, Jim, if you're out there, if you're listening, if you're still walking this planet, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on $5 comics. (laughs) Really, really would Um, Next up, Francisco in El Salvador Loved X-Men number 18 Thinks it's great that the Marvel heroes have human problems And are relatable He mentions some of the Marvel books that appear in El Salvador He cites uh, El Hombre Araña, Los Cuatro Fantasticos And Sargento Furia But he says these Spanish versions are inferior To the English versions Uh, He's happy that he can uh, understand English uh, But laments the fact that many of his friends cannot Stan responds uh, with uh, a bit of Spanish, and he says, You're mucho welcome, amigo. Come on, Stan. Come on. Um, Okay, well, that does it for the letters here. Uh, Let's head into the bullpen bulletins. And uh, this bullpen bulletins page is known as Items of Lasting Insignificance from the Four Corners of Marveldom. And we've got some bulletins here. First one, Marvel was visited by Peter Asher from the famous British singing team Peter and Gordon. To which I said, the who now? (laughs) Um, Stan loves his red Beatles mop top, and we find out that Peter is opening a bookstore in London and wants to sell Marvel mags there. I did a little bit of research. I couldn't find anything on this bookstore, but I spent about 15 minutes reading about Peter Asher. Uh, This dude is a pretty big deal, actually, with a storied career that continues even till today. I mean, he was like the... Bigwig of Sony music for a bit It's a a pretty storied career For sure Um, And he was also pals with the Beatles And uh, Stan alleges that Pete told him That the Beatles all love Marvel Comics too So uh, maybe a grain of salt or two there I don't know Bulletin, real name reveal Now, inker Frankie Ray is actually Frank Giacoa Formerly of the newspaper strip Billy Yank and Johnny Reb Which I never heard of But I can kind of assume what it was about From the title And it was actually called Johnny Reb and Billy Yank Uh, Sometimes just Johnny Reb And yeah, it's a Civil War thing Not that Civil War, you know, the actual, you know, war between the states Uh, Stan's happy that they can finally use his real name in the credits He says Frank, along with John Romita, is helping to lift Daredevil to new heights And he also makes sure to plug Romita's work on the post Ditko Amazing Spider-Man with inks by Mickey Demio you see, things are only going to get better with the Onion Man out of the office. And for folks who don't get that reference, um, you probably haven't listened to Moratory Mondays yet. That was an amazingly fun show, and it's available in the archives for you right now. Bulletin! It's summer annual time, so let's go through what we got. In June, Millie the Model and Sgt. Fury annuals come out. July, Thor and the Marvel Superheroes annuals. August, Fantastic Four and Amazing Spider-Man annuals. Now Stan says he'll make a formal announcement of what the Marvel Superhero Mag is next month. And while I kind of already spoiled that announcement, but we'll act surprised for old Stan anyway. Bulletin! Marvel is taking over the world, with articles appearing in hundreds of newspapers, and Stan lists several here. The New York Herald Tribune, Chicago Daily News, the Akron Beacon Journal, the Topeka State Journal, Cleveland Press, the Altoona Mirror. Yes, the vaunted Altoona Mirror. Milwaukee Journal, the Beckley Post, Herald, and Register, Radio Television Daily, and the New York Post. Stan thanks them all. Also, Stan was interviewed by Tom Dunn of CBS News and Mike Wallace of CBS Radio, and he thanks them for their kindness as well. Bulletin. Stan reminds us that he was taken to task for rap and brand Ech on the knuckles for sucking last issue. And he doubles down, saying brand Ech is swiping everything from Marvel but the copyrights. Now, Roy Thomas chimes in on this By giving Stan a poem Written by William Butler Yeats And it goes a little something like this To a poet Who would have me praise certain bad poets Imitators of his and mine You say as I have often given tongue In praise of what another said or sung Twere politic to do the like by these But was there ever a dog That praised his fleas Sick burn, right? Okay Bulletin Stan replugs the Marvel mini-books that appear in vending machines around the country, and he says that they're a gas. And having seen them, I agree. You can find them online. They're very, very interesting. Bulletin. Stan shares a missive from a Jan in Maryland who's taking Marvel as a whole to task for their art turning to crap. Now, Jan is upset that Jack Kirby is only drawing two books anymore and says nobody else in the Marvel bullpen is up to that standard. Now, Stan replies by mocking Jan's math skills, as Jack is currently drawing three books, not two, And those three books are Fantastic Four, Thor, and Captain America. And he's also providing layouts for two more on top of that, Hulk and the Nick Fury agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. strips. And Jack also draws most of Marvel's covers. Stan suggests that Jan's is a minority opinion, as most of the letters he's received are pleased with the roster of pencilers that Marvel currently employs. That wraps up the bullpen, but we still have the mighty Marvel checklist here. We got Fantastic Four number 53, which features the origin of the Black Panther, In Amazing Spider-Man number 39, the Green Goblin discovers Spidey's identity, and the readers find out his. Avengers number 30, are the new Avengers over already? Daredevil number 18, enter the Gladiator. Probably not that Gladiator. Thor 130 features Thor in Netherworld, battling Pluto's legions. Strange Tales number 147, Them attacks S.H.I.E.L.D.'s HQ. And I figure this is probably the Fixer's Them that we covered during the Mighty Mentalo trilogy. Also, we get the post Ditko start for The Doctor of Strange, which uh, I'm guessing, you know, onwards and upwards, of course. Suspense 80, Iron Man vs. Namor, and Captain America vs. Red Skull. Astonish number 82, Namor vs. Iron Man. Okay. And Hulk vs. Boomerang. I wonder if that's a continuing story between Suspense and Astonish. I, I suppose I could have checked, <laughs> but uh, I suppose a better host would have. I'm um, sorry about that. Sergeant Fury number 32 features a Howler turned traitor. Hmm. Marvel Tales number three features Spider Man, Ant Man, and Human Torch reprints. Uh, Fantasy Masterpieces number three continues the Golden Age Captain America. And Marvel Collector's Item Classics number four features reprints of Fantastic Four, Hulk, Iron Man, and Doctor Strange. Finally, for the Merry Marvel Marching Society, we've got 26 new members, and, well, nobody really stands out. I can tell you that next time there will a name that we'll recognize in the Merry Marvel Marching Society uh, roster of new members. So look forward to that, but that is where we're going to leave it for today. If anybody out there would like to get a hold of me for any reason, please feel free to do so. You could find me at Ace Comics on Twitter. You could shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com, or you can call into the X Labs voicemail hotline at 623-396-jerk. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrissoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And, of course, for the complete archives, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And, of course, that's available on any podcast app. And, of course, while you're there, if you like what you hear or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it each and every day, I would love for you to uh, spread the word, share the show. If you listen to any other eccentric uh, podcast, maybe let them know that uh, this little show is a thing that exists. It was recently brought to my attention that I should probably try to be more of a part of the uh, community. Um, I wasn't going to share this on the air, but I received a comment on Chris's On Infinite Earths from, I can't remember if it was anonymous or unknown. Sometimes when you don't put your name in a comment, it comes up as either one. So it might be someone I know, it might be someone I don't. But in any event, uh, they sent me a very thoughtful message about uh, the importance of being part of the community. And I tell you what, uh, I'm not good at that. I'm not good at uh, you know making friends. I'm not good at reaching out. I-, I always figure that I'm, for lack of a better term, an inconvenience to most people, <laughs> and uh, that they would uh, prefer that I'm not around. Of course, maybe maybe this is in my mind. Maybe maybe it's not. Uh, but uh, in any event, uh, if anyone out there feels like I've been avoiding the community or separating myself from it, I assure you that uh, that's not the case. I'm just really awkward and not good at that sort of thing. And uh, and if there's anyone out there who's more personable than me, which is to say pretty much anyone out there uh, who wants to help me uh, make some inroads here, I would uh, certainly appreciate it. Anyway, with that bit of embarrassment out of the way, I would like to thank you all so much for sharing some of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 33 of The Essential x lapse where I'm sure you were all on the edge of your seat, uh, what with uh, wanting to know what old Count Nefaria has planned for the X-Men, and how is he going to steal an entire city from the United States? So uh, let's not waste any time here. we got we got a lot. To, no, we really don't have much to talk about, but let's get into it all the same. This is X-Men number 23. Had an August 1966 cover date, the story is called To Save a City. Written by Roy Thomas, pencils by Werner Roth as Werner Roth. Hey, he's uh, he's cool with his name being on the book now. Inks Dick Ayers, letters Artie Simic, colors uh, analog Crayola, maybe? I don't know. Edits Stan Lee, cover price 12 cents. Now, as mentioned, we pick up right where we left off. The X-Men are captives of Count Nefaria, who is still blathering on about literally stealing Washington, D.C. from the United States and ransoming it back to them. Now, he's certain that the X-Men will play along with this plot, because, well, he's going to make it look as though they're part of it, whether they are or not. Now, the X-Men are incredulous, you know, after all, Washington, D.C. is the most heavily guarded city on planet Earth. And Nefaria's all, hey, challenge accepted, and he heads back to his little laboratory to get this party started. Oh, and he also gives them one hour to come to their senses and uh, join him and the Magia. Now, before we know it, Washington, D.C. is encased in a dome. So, uh, I guess maybe Brainiac is collecting cities from the Marvel Universe now? Oh, boy, I hope this leads to, uh, you know, like a half-assed nostalgia wank like Convergence. Nah, thankfully it's, uh, it's nothing that bad. But, uh, Washington, D.C. is now cut off from the rest of the United States via this crystalline dome. Now, somewhat amusingly, an airplane narrowly avoids running right into the dome. So, I, I mean, this is one solid pilot they got there. It's like he's barreling towards this thing and then makes a, makes an on-the-dime turn here. It's pretty crazy. Anyway, inside Washington, people are kind of going cuckoo. And, I mean, that kind of stands to reason. Uh, the emergency services folks try hacking their way through the dome with axes, and, uh, well, it's a no-go. Local construction workers lend their jackhammers, and also, no-go. Oddly, nobody's thought to tunnel out from, like, under the dome. But I suppose then we wouldn't, uh, have the rest of this story, eh, Marvelites? By the way, Roy Thomas really seems to like using the word Marvelite in his captions. We're gonna get it many times here. Anyway, from here, Nefaria puts his plans into action, without even checking back in with the X-Men to see if they changed their minds. Which seems, you know, a little unfair, I guess. But, uh, in any event... He sends phony, illusionary X-Men into the Capitol building to make his demands. Now, if you remember, we saw those fake X-Men flying over Central Park last issue. Well, those were Nefarious projections. Anyway, these fake X-Men pass on the Count's demands. He wants $100 million. Rather, certificates worth a hundred million dollars, so I would really like to imagine that Nefaria gets handed, like, a trillion supermarket coupons, all with a value of one one-hundredth of a penny or something like that. So after giving these demands, the, uh, fake X-Men vanish with a bleep, and the folks in the capital are worried that Congress will turn this down. Uh, which I guess, same as it ever was, huh? Now back to the dungeon, where we see the real deal X-Men, they're, uh, well, they're still hanging around, pardon the pun. Uh, Jean seems to be the only one who can still access her powers, Though, I mean, Bobby is still in his iced-up form He should be able to do something, right? Oh, well Uh, So Jean uses her TK to try and tinker with the cuffs that they're wearing But it's no use It looks like Nefaria did his homework on our merry mutants And, uh, well, she wishes there were a way to contact the professor I I bet you forgot about him, huh? I mean, it's not like this story can end any other way Than him swooping in at the last minute to save the day, right? Anybody want to take that bet? I didn't think so. Uh, So, let's shift over to Xavier's lab back at the mansion, where he's in the process of putting together a brand new invention. Now, his concentration is broken by the phone ringing, and it's General Fredericks who's calling to talk to him about the X-Men having gone rogue. And, I mean, this makes perfect sense, right? Professor X, who has absolutely no affiliation with the X-Men, and has only met them the one time... It's perfectly logical for a military general to reach out to this creepy bald man who lives alone in a great big mansion for help, right? Huh. Okay, well, Xavier gets off the phone, and he attempts to make psychic contact with his charges, but he gets no response. Yet. Back to the dungeon, where Scott has a thinking-outside-the-box idea, which is very much of its time, because it frames the way his visor works quite differently than it seems to nowadays. You see, he asked Marvel Girl to use her TK not to try to remove the steel band that's wrapped around his face. And I guess, by the way, Cyclops has a steel band wrapped around his face to prevent him from optic blasting. So yeah, Jean is not trying to remove that. Instead, she's going to go under it to open Scott's visor so he can blow the thing off his face himself. And what do you know, that's exactly what happens. Scott then frees himself fully before freeing the rest of his pals. Just then, they get Professor X's psychic call, and uh, they get some instructions to follow. Next thing we know, the X-Men, the real X-Men, are in Nefaria's control room, where they let him know that, you know, they thought it over, and they will join him. After all, humans hate them, so why not try to exact some revenge on them, and also get rich in the process? On Nefaria, he's, uh, pleased, but a bit tentative about this sudden change of heart. Now, he reveals that this crystalline dome over Washington, D.C. can only be dissipated by him and his hands, And if the X-Men double-cross him, he'll just destroy the whole city and everyone in it. So, uh, they better not. He then gives the X-Men their marching orders. Now, they're to load in the back of a truck headed to a specific place along the dome. And once there, he will open it just quick enough for them to enter. And, of course, they'll close it behind them. And once inside, they'll collect the hundred million. And so, the X-Men are off. Only, they appear to be, uh, followed by another innocent-looking truck... Hmm, I wonder who could be inside. Well, we we don't have to wait too long. It's uh, the Magia Geek Squad here. It's Porcupine, Unicorn, Eel, Scarecrow, and Plant Man. Now, they arrive outside the rim of the dome, where they vow to never do Nefaria's bidding again. In fact, they're planning on taking the spoils for themselves. Only, uh, they can't decide which of them will be their new leader. So I I feel like we read this exact scene any time bad guys join up, right? Anyway, from here... We shift scenes over to Professor Xavier's arrival outside of Washington, D.C. Now, the General wants some answers as to the X-Men's betrayal, and Xavier is sure they're being framed. The General isn't buying that for even a second. Xavier apologizes and excuses himself to do some more thinking on the matter, which is to say he sits there and zones out right in front of everybody so he can project an astral image and get a better look at exactly what's going on here, which, I mean, for the military guys there, probably looks... Fairly ridiculous. He's just sitting there, staring at the nothing. Anyway, we follow the astral Xavier all the way to Count Nefaria's control room, where our baddie conveniently narrates how he goes about controlling the crystalline dome. And if you remember, the Count is the only one who can do this, so uh, saying this out loud where there's a uh, psychic astral presence in the room is probably not in his best interests. Anyway, Xavier was lucky enough to arrive just in time for the Count to open the dome long enough for the X-Men to enter it. Once inside, we see that they're being watched very closely by both the authorities and the Magia goofballs. Now, the X-Men meet up with their contact, who has a briefcase full of large-denomination gold-redeemable certificates. Angel swoops in to collect the bounty. Now, he's spotted by an officer who must have, like, just woken up. He doesn't realize there's a dome over the, uh, the city. He doesn't realize what uh, kind of peril Washington, D.C. is in. Because he goes to shoot Angel out of the sky. Uh, only Iceman is there to encase the cops shooting hand in the ice Now the contact who just handed the briefcase out of the X-Men is like Hey, yo, don't shoot at these guys cause they gotta do their thing Otherwise Washington DC is basically a goner So from here the X-Men go to leave town Only they're met by some angry citizens Who take to giving chase while hurling bricks at them Now for some reason at this point Beast runs up the side of the Washington Monument Even though they were just like far outside town Maybe I'm thinking too hard about it, maybe they just really wanted this scene in there Just so we're like totally clear we're in Washington D.C. I guess I don't know So we got the X-Men, right? They're being attacked by the civilians, right? So now it's left to the Magia dorks to save them, only in order to protect the loot So that's exactly what they do Scarecrow sixes crows on the civvies Porcupine emits a tear gas You know, just like a real porcupine would do in this situation The eel electrocutes them, the unicorn fires off a horn bolt at them, and finally, my favorite and yours, the plant man, sprays the trees with some sort of mist that makes them come to life. So at this point, the X-Men are now safe from the normal folk and have made it back safely outside the dome. It's here that the unicorn approaches Cyclops to ask for the briefcase, claiming that they'd been sent by Nefaria. Well, Cyclops ain't buying that for a moment, and so it's time for another fight. And uh, I didn't mention this, but on the cover, it did say that this issue was one for the, quote, action lovers. (laughs) And uh, I wonder if this, like, multiple fight scene issue is some sort of response to that one-letter hack we had a few issues back that complained that Stan didn't have enough action in these mags. Uh, You know, Stan was quite reactionary back in the long ago, wasn't he? Anyway, the X-Men and the Magia do battle. Cyclops and the Unicorns Blast seem to negate one another, which, huh... Does that mean that the Unicorn might be the fifth Summer's brother? Huh. Hmm, that's food for thought. Uh, The porcupine spews a viscous white fluid from his midsection that comes with a sloosh sound effect. Let's not think too hard about that one. Um, Iceman manages to shield Hank before he can get a face full of the uh, sloosh. From here, we get a page of people bobbling the briefcase in nutty ways until it finally winds up in the hands of the Unicorn who then engages his little rocket booty thrusters to fly away. Nefaria is watching this all play out via one of his many, many monitors, and is quite displeased that one of his own Magia goons have dared double-cross him. Back to the Professor, and things have escalated, because he's just being informed by the General that the X-Men are to be shot on sight. They're wanted dead or alive at this point. And, I mean, it's really not hard to see why, right? They are literally helping Count Nefaria to hold Washington, D.C. hostage at this point, aren't they? Anyway, uh, the professor then, slump-shouldered, says, Hey, I guess you have no more use for me. And, I mean, really, what has Xavier done here, other than waste everybody's time and zone out? And so he excuses himself, asking to be wheeled back to his swank motel. I mean, is there such a thing as a swank motel? Like, I could see a place ironically called the swank motel, but... I don't think swank is an actual adjective you'd use to describe a motel. Oh well, uh, Chuck is wheeled over to the swank bank, as he claims to be very exhausted from all of his rest. We head back to the X-Men, and for some reason, the unicorn's back. I, I thought he'd flown away. I mean, coming back is kind of just asking for trouble, isn't it? Anyway, the army is here, and they're aiming at the baddie, but the X-Men stop them. Like, literally, literally, Angel and the Beast attack the soldiers. While Iceman ices, ices up a tank's cannon. And remind me of this the next time the X Men complain that humans fear and hate them purely out of bigotry, right? At this point, Cyclops has somehow gained possession of the briefcase, and he hands it off to Marvel Girl so she could deliver it to Nefaria, which is still part of Xavier's plan, you see? Now, at this point, all the Magiaites, minus the Unicorn, load back into their innocent looking truck and they flee the scene. Roy, calling us Marvelites for like the fourth time this issue, informs us that these geeks are gone for now. The unicorn watches this play out from some nearby foliage. Now back at Nefaria's place, he's visited by a strange man with mental powers, who just comes walking in the front door, and he's dressed like Negative Man from the Doom Patrol. Huh, walking in? Huh. Walking? I hope that doesn't give the shocking twist away. Uh, Just then, Jean arrives as well, with all the loot for the Count. Now, while she's handing it over, Negative Man proceeds to click and clack on Nefaria's control deck. Now, Nefaria goes to stop this stranger, but Marvel Girl is able to use her TK to hold him at bay. And she claims to recognize the voice of this strange, standing, walking fellow. Huh. Moments later, the rest of the X-Men arrive, and... By now, Nefaria has somehow managed to flee, with the briefcase, and he's already boarded his nearby freighter. I don't know how much time was supposed to have elapsed between these two panels, but, uh, okay, (laughs) we'll accept it. Um, Now, while Nefaria is on his boat, the unicorn flies off to meet him on the open seas, and this is pretty dumb and it's about to get worse, uh, because Negative Man removes his disguise to reveal himself to be... Any guesses? Professor Charles Francis Xavier, but 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 how how? Well, y'all remember that invention he was working on like ten pages ago, right? Well, this invention was lightweight, flexible metal braces, which allow him to stand and walk for several hours at a time. A very useful invention that uh, I think we'll probably only see like once or twice again. But uh, whatever. Um, now the X-Men, they're still kind of gobsmacked, however, because. You know, they just aided and abetted in Count Nefaria stealing $100 from the U.S. government. To which, Xavier cockily lights his pipe and informs the teens that, nah, Nefaria didn't get the money. You see, using Nefaria's own powers against him, Xavier made it so the Count took a mental projection of the briefcase and not the real deal. And so we pop in to find Nefaria and the Unicorn both very, very sad indeed that they got diddly-squat out of this caper. Now we wrap up with Xavier handing Jean a letter that arrived for her that morning, and after reading it, with tears in her eyes, Jean informs the team that she must leave the X-Men forever. Our next issue blurb threatens, or promises, a a battle with the Locust. And it ends with, And if that isn't enough said, Stan doesn't know what is. Stan, I love you, but uh, I think this is a case where we'll have to agree to disagree. So, uh, well, that was the two-part Count Nefarious saga, which, uh... Hmm. Last episode I said I hoped I had a lot more to say after reading the second part, and, uh, I don't. <laughs> I really don't. This, uh, was less than spectacular, wasn't it? Uh, I really don't want to dismiss these issues as being, you know, bad, <laughs> because uh, Roy is still very early in his career, and he's uh, still trying to get his footing with this book, I feel. And it's this odd bit of dissonance between keeping it to the traditional X-Men formula And also trying to expand the X-Men's footprint on the Marvel Universe, right? Here we have the X-Men dealing with non-X-Men villain Which is fun and novel and it's not, you know, the you know, the tenth appearance of Magneto So that's a good thing as well But it's still the same old formula and it's still kind of short-sighted now, one of the things I think of when uh, Roy Thomas comes to mind is, like, very tight-knit continuity here. Everything kind of serves something else. This story doesn't feel that way. Because, I mean, let's break it down here. The X-Men aided and abetted a villain in holding an entire city hostage. How do they get out of this? Like, do they go to the general and be like, hey, we were just kidding that whole time? I mean, that doesn't change the fact that they attacked soldiers. <laughs> they attacked... They they endangered civilians. Uh, they... Ruined military equipment, it's... I mean, the mutants are feared and hated So, this this is a hard one to get out of At least, maybe I'm thinking too odd about it That is certainly a possibility, maybe a probability But, I don't know, it's hard to walk this one back for me And also, it's just another case of the X-Men doing all the grunt work And then Xavier sliding in at the very end to to save the day Now, looking at this story with more modern or current year eyes It uh, almost feels like Xavier is purposely not giving them enough rope to just come up short. Like, all the unglamorous work is done, but they can't quite get it over, you know, they can't get past the one-yard line. So Xavier gets the ball and crosses into the end zone, gets all the glory, all the credit, all the kudos, and, uh, I don't know, it seems like uh, maybe that's the way he wants it. He's, uh, very manipulative. I mean, he tells the X-Men to help Nefaria without giving them the reason why, because they were all surprised at the end game. So it's, a uh, I don't know, maybe I don't think we're supposed to be thinking about it that hard, but, uh, that's my main takeaway. It's, uh, it's just very tiresome having Xavier do this every single time. We really need a change in the formula, and hopefully, hopefully there's one coming soon. But, um, really don't have a whole heck of a lot more to say about this issue. It was, uh, it was what it was, and, uh, I'm glad that we're past it. So, uh... We will get ready for the Locust next time, for better or for worse, and hope that it's uh, one where the X-Men actually get to be victorious and celebrate a victory. Well, we'll we'll worry about that next time, but uh, let's leave it there for now. And uh, how about we visit the X-Men in the letters page here. We got James in Ohio to kick things off, and he comments on another letter hack we discussed several issues ago. And this is the one who suggested that readers write into the actual characters. And that Stan would have to respond as that character. Now, James thinks this is dumb, and on that we agree. I think this sort of thing only works with Deadpool. Because that's, you know, tongue-in-cheek by design. Um, I recall reading an issue of Deadpool not too long ago where somebody wrote a letter in asking where they can find comics online. And Deadpool answered, as Deadpool, about to give away, like, a scan site. And then, like, the editor had to chime in and, like, redact it. It was was pretty funny, it was cute, but uh, definitely not something I'd like to see across the board, for sure. Now, James also calls this hack out on having a problem with Stan's gags and no prizes, and uh, how they stated that Stan really doesn't care about the readers. He says that this was one lame-brained letter, and uh, he's not wrong. James loves Marvel Comics, he loves Stan, and he loves the X-Men most of all. Now, Stan thanks James for his kind words, but informs him not to fret about the naysayers, because if everybody loved them, well, then he'd know they were doing something wrong. Next up is Steve Harvey in New York City, and, uh, well, we're gonna assume that it's that Steve Harvey, and, uh, no, I'm not gonna try to do an impression, because that would be, uh, very unfortunate. Now, uh, Steve is kind of a dick. <laughs> he claims that he's written oodles of letters to Stan, and thus far none of them have gotten published. And so, he's come up with six easy and snarky ways to get your letter published in a Marvel mag. You're all ready for this? Um, 1. Write a scientific monograph. You know, in other words, uh, call Stan out for his uh, lack of scientific knowledge. Um, 2. Join the armed forces and or write to Stan from an overseas base. Wow. Um, 3. If too young for the military, join the Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts because Stan's got a weakness for folks in uniform. I'm telling you, Steve's a dick. Um, Four, it gets worse. Get very sick and write Stan from the hospital. Bonus points if you mention how ugly your nurse is. (sighs) He says that Stan might feel so bad he'll gift you a subscription. Five, write a ridiculous joke-filled letter. And I wonder if Steve thinks that this is a joke-filled letter. Six, write a good and sincere letter. And uh, Stan tells him he's wrong on all counts. And even this letter isn't worth printing. And uh, yes, yeah, Steve, you're you're an asshole. That's, <laughs> there's that no other way to say it. Next up, Shirley in Texas. Now, she feels that the X-Men have gone from fabulous superheroes to pampered geeks who have to constantly be rescued by outside forces. Also, I'm guessing Shirley's noticed the X-Men formula where they're constantly messing up and then have Professor X save them at the last minute. Well, no, that's actually not what she's referring to. She cites that the Stranger had to rescue the X-Men from Magneto twice, and how the Mimic only lost because of his father's machine. She then goes on to complain about Captain America being portrayed as an old man, which, I mean, that has tons to do with the X-Men. She also doesn't like Iron Man and Thor constantly being jobbed out, says that they shouldn't be underdogs like Spider-Man, and, oh, (laughs) she also doesn't like Spider-Man. A somewhat confused Stan thanks her for the letter, and then suggests that maybe she write into Tales of Suspense with some more complaints about the X-Men. Next up, Ken in Massachusetts. Thought X-Men number 19 was great and loved The Mimic. Wants to see The Mimic come back and fight Spider-Man in the Fantastic Four. Also wants to know what Hank McCoy's shoe size is. Stan guesses that the Beast is a size 15. We're going to find out in a few issues what it actually is, so um, look forward to that. Uh, Chuck in Virginia. He loved that X-Men number 19 was a done-in-one issue after the, you know, previous five were all multi-parters, or actually the previous seven, I believe, were all multi-parters. Thought the mimic was cool, but a little too much like other Marvel baddies. And he thinks Stan's introductions are a little too much. He thinks it was odd that Jean expressed surprise at enjoying an issue of Monsters Unlimited, suggesting that maybe she's got some bad taste in literature and might even be a fan of brand Ech. Now, Stan puts Chuck on the spot, asking him to name the character who he feels that the Mimic is similar to. And I smell a no-prize opportunity, and I'll even send out a fake-ass no-prize on this one. Next up, Gary in Florida. Now, he wants more plot development in the X-Men book, and he is a fan of uh, the multi-part format. He feels like it's a little too episodic, and wonders why they keep getting new planes and helicopters, which is a pretty good question. He wants to know a bit more about our characters, and so, you know, he'd like the stories to continue on a bit to give Stan and the gang room to flesh them out. Now, Gary mocks the naysayers to the multi-part story and suggests that if they want to read three or four lame short stories every issue, well, they can cross the street and patronize brand ECH. Well, Stan says here that the uh, controversy over the multiparters has seemed to have died down a little bit of late, and he also sympathizes with any reader who happens to miss a chapter in a continued story. Now Stan says that uh, you know they don't plan whether or not a story will go a single issue or many issues. He says it's basically a case-by-case basis decided on what's best for the story as it's being written. Finally, we got Jim in Virginia, who thought X-Men number 19 was great. In fact, he loved all of Marvel's output that month, but uh, I guess he could only afford one stamp, so he's writing in about all of it here. And Stan thanks him very much. Those were the letters, my friends. Now, onto the bullpen bulletins, also known as capricious commentaries carefully cooked up to confuse and confound you. Item Stan took a vacation. Okay, so Stan took a vacation. You might be wondering who filled in for him on the scaty 800 books that he writes a month. Well, Roy Thomas finished up the Submariner and Iron Man stories and Tales to Astonish, number 82. Denny O'Neill did the final 13 pages of Daredevil, number 18. And Jack Kirby scripted Nick Fury Agent A Shield in Strange Tales, number 148. Item. Hipper Marvel readers are giving Stan and the gang credit for the more authentic Greenwich Village that they're seeing in the pages of Doctor Strange. And Stan says that this is due to the post-Ditco artist Bill Everett, who is sharing a pad with Roy Thomas in the village for a little bit. Now, Stan also suggests that Roy and Bill's next-door neighbor might have been the Dread Dormammu. Item. New Marvel sweatshirt alert, so uh, now you don't have to wear your Hulk one 24 hours a day anymore. And uh, well, we'll talk about what that shirt is in just a little bit. Item, king size specials on the racks. Uh, I guess we're not calling them annuals anymore, at least not for the moment. Uh, now on sale, Millie the model and Sergeant Fury and as Howling Commandos. Of course, 25 cents a pop to be followed by Thor, Marvel superheroes, Fantastic Four, and Amazing Spider-Man. Also, 25 cents a pop. Item, real name reveal. Jay Gavin is actually Werner Roth. Now Stan cites that the Marvel bullpen are becoming so proud of their work that they're totally cool actually signing their real names to it now. How about that? Item. A couple more radio DJs have joined the ranks of the Merry Marvel Marchers, and uh, I know we all get very excited about radio DJs being part of the MMMS. We got Dick Robinson from uh, WDRC in Hartford, Connecticut, and Spence Allen from WKSN in Jamestown, New York. And WKSN is referred to as Kissin' Radio, so uh, pretty steamy stuff. Item. UC Berkeley have been using Marvel characters on posters for student government elections. So the next time someone tells you that comic characters are never political, and you can I guess you can cite this, I don't know. Item. Jack Kirby is very busy. He's very, very busy. He's got a lot to do. A lot of stuff on his plate. Too much stuff. He's so busy that he doesn't even realize like when real life earthquakes happen. He's a very, very busy man. He is to comics art what I am to comics podcasting. I am totally blind to just about everything else going on in the real world. The wrap-up. Next issue, Stan will reveal the results of the poll on whether or not he should keep needling Brand Ech. Now, he says that that might get at least one person to read these bulletins, and, uh, well, that one person is probably me, but I'll share it all with you as well. How about we hop into the mighty Marvel checklist? We got Fantastic Four number 54, which will feature the Human Torch and the Inhumans. Yeah, two great tastes that go blech together. Um, I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, I like the torch, so it's, uh... One good, one good thing and one really bad thing. Uh, Spider-Man number 40 wraps up the saga of the Green Goblin. Avengers number 31 is Goliath as never before seen. Daredevil number 19 has the hair-raising return of the mass marauder and the final fate of Foggy Nelson. Now, I'm not sure if the mass marauder is referring to Daredevil himself or someone altogether different. Anyway, uh, Thor 131 has Thor versus the Space Colonizer, which sounds wildly exciting. Strange Tales 148, has S.H.I.E.L.D. dismissing Nick Fury? Hmm. Also the origin of the Ancient One in the Doctor Strange strip. Suspense 81, Iron Man vs. Titanium Man? Again. Captain America vs. Red Skull? Again. This time with a Cosmic Cube added in. Astonish 83, Submariner vs. Krang? Probably not that Krang. And General Ross meets with the Hulk. Sergeant Fury number 33, guest starring the... Two-Fisted Skipper, which sounds like a uh, salacious thing you'd have to go behind a curtain to find, but uh, we won't go into that. Uh, fantasy Masterpieces number 4 features more Golden Age Captain America. Marvel Tales number 4, Spider-Man, Thor, Ant-Man, Human Torch reprints. Marvel's Collector's Item Classics number 4, Fantastic Four, Hulk, Iron Man, Doctor Strange reprints. Uh, the Sergeant Fury 25-Cent Special number 2 features the Howlers on D-Day. And finally, the Millie the Model 25-Cent Special Number 5. I'll just read you what Stan wrote. Somebody must like this mag. It sells like hotcakes year after year. A great gift for the gals. Finally, let's check in with the Merry Marvel Marching Society. We got 26 new members, and I mentioned we got a famous name in here. We got Dave Cockrum from Miramar, California. Not sure if it's that Dave Cockrum, but uh, let's assume that it is. Just so it feels like we're holding a little piece of history here. Also, we got a new sweatshirt. Stan talked about the new sweatshirt And uh, this one features the Thing Shouting it's clobberin' time on the front And on the back it's the Thing from behind With his catchphrase written backwards So, kinda like the Hulk one The here comes the Hulk, there goes the Hulk thing Uh, And for $3.15 Plus a quarter's postage It's yours, you can have it if you'd like And they come in two sizes Monstrous youth and gargantuan adult that does it for the issue here Let's hop into some shoutouts here Some folks who uh, took the time to uh, click the little icons On the social media shares of this show That uh, really, really mean a lot to me Probably mean too much to me let's, uh, let's get some thank yous in here First on Twitter, I want to thank Mark Jagger, The Long Box Crusade Neil Alejandre Dave Schultz, Chris at BTO and Bat Books Now next is a handle I've seen a lot But I've never tried to say his name out loud So I apologize if I get this wrong Todd Van Evenhoven I hope I'm close at least. Uh, Dan Schwent, Walt Nealon, Joe Crawford, 21st Century Boys, Jesse D. Young, Jeremiah, Zurabi, and Billy D. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Jeremiah, Chris Bailey, Andrew Franklin, Pat Sampson, Walt Nealon, Billy D., Evan Bevins, and Jesse D. Young. You all make me feel a little less alone, so uh, thank you <laughs> so, so much. Now, if anybody would like to get a hold of me for uh, whatever reason, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory@gmail.com, at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Labs voicemail hotline at 623 396 jerk For blog posts and show notes, you can head over to chrissoninfiniteearths.com. You can join us on Facebook for some fun conversation. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And finally, for all your Chris and Reggie listening needs, including the complete X-Labs archive of programs, you can head over to chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that's available on any podcasting application that uh, you might have on your mobile device. And, of course, if you like what you hear or at least appreciate the effort that goes into it, I would love for you to spread the word and share the show. Let's try to pick up a few more ears in our uh, X-Labs journey. It would really, really mean a lot to me. Anyway, uh, with all that said, I want to thank you all so much for spending some time with me today, and until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya! Hey, how's it going everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 34 of The Essential X-Lapse where uh, if you thought we hit some dramatic lows with the villains we got over the past couple of issues well, uh, the one we get today might make them look like the second coming of uh, Magneto I mean, not Silver Age Magneto because I guess we were all getting tired of him but, uh, you know, the Magneto we all like, we'll say Today we're going to meet the Locust Okay, let's do it. Uh, X-Men number 24, September 1966, cover date. The Plague of... The Locust. Written by Roy Thomas. Pencils, Werner Roth. Inks, Dick Ayers. Letters, Sam Rosen. edits Stan Lee. Cover price, 12 cents. Now we open, with Jean Grey preparing to leave the X-Men... forever. And forever, we're about to find out, is a uh, pretty relative term. Um, Now she TKs some books on... TK off the professor's shelf And asks if she can borrow them Xavier says not only can she borrow them But she can keep them as a parting gift From the X-Men Now Warren, he's pretty bummed out That he appears to have missed his chance with her And Scott feels very much the same But dares not let on about his true feelings Now you might be asking And you might have been asking yourself this Since last episode Why does Jean have to split And where is she going Well, you see, it uh, took her folks this long to realize that, uh... Hey, you know, our daughter graduated from that creepy bald man secret school way back in Issue 7, and here we are in Issue 24, and she's still living there. So, uh, what gives? Now, Stan gives us a very funny footnote here, making his best guess at which issue the graduation actually took place in, which, uh, that's pretty cute. Anyway, so the Greys have decided it's high time to have Jean transfer from the fictional Xavier School to... A fictional college. Metro college, in fact, uh, where Johnny Storm goes. Now, Xavier suggests that Jean can still come back and visit just as often as she'd like. Jean, not wanting to cry in front of her teammates, excuses herself and runs back to her room to change clothes. Xavier then has the fellas grab their present for Jean, and, uh... It's a corsage. I I guess the 60s were were a different time. Uh, Jean, in her civvies, is very happy with it and promises that she will treasure it always. From here, the goodbyes are said, and Warren and Scott drive her into the city. Now, it's pouring rain, not that it really matters, though I suppose it does add a bit more sadness to the scene. Anyway, the ride is silent. All three young mutants are lost in their own thoughts. Warren is worried that maybe Jean will meet and fall for Johnny Storm. Now, Jean is scared that Scott hasn't said all that much to her. Scott's also sad, but again, he dares not show it until he's cured of the curse of his deadly, deadly eyes. Now, upon arrival at Metro, Jean is greeted by a goofball named Ted Roberts, who whisks her away to take her to enrollment. Jean goes along and even agrees to go on a date with him. Now, this Ted is someone who uh, we in the biz might call a fast mover. It turns out that Jean only agrees to go out with him so she can distract herself from her beloved Scott. All right, so we're a few pages in here. How about we meet the baddie of the month, huh? We shift scenes over to a farmhouse, where an idiot in a locust costume is dropping a bunch of ionically treated insect eggs into the crops. These eggs immediately hatch, revealing themselves to be locusts, who grow with every single bite they take. Now, as they grow, the crunching becomes louder and louder, to the point where it's loud enough to wake up the farmer who takes a look out his window to see, you know, giant locusts, and an idiot dressed like one, ravaging his crops. The next morning, the police arrive uh, to the now-barren farmland. The farmer attempts to explain what he's seen the best he can, uh, and the officers are pretty split on whether or not to believe him, and one's really being a dick about it, while the other reminds them all that, hey, you know what, we live in the fantastical Marvel Universe, so this isn't the strangest thing we're going to see today. From here, we shift back to Xavier's, where the four remaining X-Men are busy doing the Danger Room thing. Then, Professor X interrupts to inform them that he just learned these crazy claims of giant locusts wrecking havoc at a farm. Now, he assumes that these locusts grew to their immense size due to... ...a mutation. And therefore, they are under the purview of the X-Men. And so, not too long after, the X-Men's X-Copter is seen hovering over the Corn Belt. They land and find... ...you know, those giant locusts, which is pretty convenient. From here we get a few pages of mutant-on-insect action, which actually veers into a bit of, uh, odd brutality. Um, now, Kid Cool fashions an ice spear and literally harpoons one of the buggers. Like, he impales this poor thing. Like, it goes right through it. There's no blood, but, uh, I mean, I'm not even sure locusts have blood. I'm, I'm sure I could have looked that up, but I, uh, I didn't. Anyway, Cyclops then blasts the bejesus out of another one, and I tell you what, it's a good thing the crocoan laws don't extend to insects. At least I don't think they do. Anyway, by now, the farmer is flying overhead in his own helicopter. I guess uh, helicopters were a lot cheaper back then. And he unleashes a cloud of DDT over the big bugs and the uncanny eczema. Once the cloud clears, Professor X orders his charges back and asks that they bring one of the dead bugs back with them for study. As our heroes take off, we see that the military has moved in with flamethrowers in order to finish off the locust plague and... I tell you, this might just be the most violent issue yet. I mean, flamethrowers, impalements, it's, uh, it's pretty hardcore for, uh, for the time. Anyway, let's head back over to Jean. Let's check in with her. Now, she and Ted Roberts head out for a hot date at the Metro Student Center. Now, she notices some students mocking a strange bearded man. Jean asks Ted if he knows what this is all about, and so he explains that this goofball is Doctor Dr. Hopper. Mm, Okay, A former professor at MC who was canceled for floating some crackpot theories about big bugs And now he works at Ryan Chemicals Gene claims to notice something about Hopper's voice Uh, I doubt its recognition, as this issue is his first of three ever appearances And so she couldn't possibly be, you know, know it from anywhere Maybe she's just on high alert Now, it's worth noting there is a cameo of Johnny Storm and Wyatt Wingfoot here, which Stan gives us a footnote about, telling us that this is, in fact, not Johnny and Wyatt, just some lookalikes because the real deals were currently in the Himalayas over in Fantastic Four. And, uh, you know, wow, imagine an editor caring this much, or at all, about continuity. It It was a different world back then. From here, we stick with Doc Hopper as he leaves the student center of the school he was fired from in disgrace, I mean, why would he be hanging out there in the first place? Um, Has anyone listening ever gotten, like, fired and maybe even humiliated at a job? Would would you keep popping up to grab lunch there? I don't know. Anyway, we follow Hopper back to his private mobile lab from Ryan Chemical, where it's made abundantly clear that he is, in fact, dun-dun-dun, the locust. Now, he uses his magno-ray to blast a gross-looking caterpillar as well as a beetle and the, the bugs battle for a bit. And I feel like there should be a law against this. Isn't this, uh, like, cruelty to disgusting insects or something? Anyway, Hopper watches the fight play out while vowing to take down the X-Men. Speaking of which, hey, let's see what they're up to. Professor X is conducting an insectoid autopsy on the giant locust carcass and is able to deduce that while this bugger is mutated, it actually isn't a mutant, because artificial memes were used to cause it to grow. Angel suggests that whoever did this might be a mutant then But uh, nope, nope, not at all Xavier says that the X-copter's got a portable cerebro on it And it could sense mutants Or juggernauts, I guess Within a 25-mile radius And it picked up nothing Just then, Jean Grey returns She was gone for an entire six pages Uh, This might actually be a quicker return Than the last time Scott decided to quit the team Anyway, once she's caught up to speed on the sitch, she tells all she knows about that disgraced weirdo, Dr. August Hopper. Xavier's interest and curiosity are piqued. Jean gives even more details on Hopper's crackpot theories. Now, they were regarding ionic bombardment, which caused insects to mutate and grow, to the point where they would threaten the destruction of mankind. Xavier orders Warren to give him a ride to Ryan Chemical, so he might have a chat with all August. And so... We next join Charles at Ryan Kim, where he finds out that Hopper is on her leave of absence. Xavier does meet with a plant supervisor named Mr. Hamilton, who thinks that Hopper wouldn't mind at all if Xavier took a peek into his personal office anyway. Which, yeah, I, I don't think so. But okay. Now, once inside the office, Xavier uh, takes a page out of Mentholo's book and uh, reads the minds of Hopper's equipment. Okay. He also notices that there appear to be some samples of locust eggs missing And also, a great big map of the United States with several X's marking various spots I mean, for an evil genius, the locust is a friggin' idiot Xavier figures he knows enough about enough, and he takes his leave He telepathically reaches out to the X-Men, informing them that their numbers come up It's time to go on a mission And so they're being sent to the second X that the prof noticed on Hopper's map along the Corn Belt And what do you know? The X-Men go there and they happen across the locust and his locusts straight away. And they fight for a few pages. The skirmish ends when Iceman uses his second move against bad guys. You know, he ices up the ground beneath them. And this causes the locust to slip and bump his butt on the ground. Just then, that giant beetle from Hopper's Mobile Lab shows up. And while the X-Men are scurrying away from that, the Locust sprinkles some more ionized eggs on the ground, and after hitting them with his magic flashlight, several dozen giant wasps hatch from them. Now, while Bobby and Hank run a giant ice spear through the beetle, the wasps approach. And I I tell you, I mean, this is a violent issue. Not for the weak of heart. Not at all. I don't know how this one got past the CCA. Anyway, Bobby continues being the MVP of the issue by creating a transparent ice shell around the team to keep the stingers out. Cyclops then starts blasting the buggers with his cursed eyes. And moments later, the army shows up with their flamethrowers to take care of business. Back to the X-Copter, Professor X takes the team to the next X on Hopper's map. There, they find a car and a trailer at the edge of a cliff. Now, we can assume that the trailer is Hopper's mobile lab, because, well, back in the very next panel, we're taken inside it, where we learn that, yeah, this is Hopper's mobile lab. Just then, a strange bearded hermit... (laughs) Comes walking up to the trailer Oh boy Um, Now this hermit begins ranting and rambling about the locust unleashing evil upon the world And he appeals to the locust to change his evil ways and repent But our bad guy ain't having none of it And so he flies away Now it should come as absolutely no surprise that this hermit Is actually Professor X using his mechanical legs and his quote hermit garb Hermit garb. I I guess, uh, like, this is in, like, the Xavier roleplay rotation, then? It's like, oh, no, no, that's just Professor X in his hermit garb. (laughs) Ridiculous. Anyway, the Locust runs afoul of the X-Men again, and... You guessed it. They fight. Now, you know how I like to mention how Warren's only training in the Danger Room is avoiding nets? And how every time they're in battle, he seems to get caught in one? Well... That doesn't exactly happen here. This is more a case where he gets trapped in a web. So, close enough, right? Then, the locust uses his magic flashlight to grow a pair of giant cockroaches. Gene notices that Hopper is controlling the bugs via his own costume antenna. He's got antennas on his head and, uh, somehow is communicating through them. And so, she TKs the antenna into a knot. Now, this causes the bugs to go nuts. And, well, uh... It seems like they're attempting to uh, mate with uh, Hopper's mobile lab. Uh, I mean, I tell you what, this trailer is a-rockin'. Now, they hump this thing so hard that it snaps off its tow hitch and plummets off the side of the cliff and into the drink below. The creepy hermit then saunters back up to tell the locust that, you know, hey, I told you so, because Xavier's always gotta have the last word. And, well, that's all it takes for our baddie to renounce evil, and even decide to turn himself in for all the trouble he's caused. And that's that. Next issue, uh, the Milestone 25th issue of X-Men, uh, continues our cavalcade of crappy felons with El Gray. Now, this is usually where I share my thoughts on the issue in some sort of a concise fashion. i only... I don't have anything to say about this one. I I think uh, I probably said everything I need to say during the synopsis. This was more of the same. Um, I will say, I mean, I've been ragging on Professor X for quite a bit now, just uh, from being his formulaic and manipulative self here, and that's something that uh, I oddly hadn't noticed uh, the first time I read these. Though, I mean, I first read these things in the mid to late 90s, and that's like the only time I ever read these. And around that time, it was kind of in the air that, uh, you know, we didn't entirely trust Professor X. You know, this was post-onslaught, post-Operation Zero Tolerance, where he was locked in the thing with the with the Hue mates or whatever, the, the, the girl with the huge eyes or whatever. And then he put together that team of, like, the all-new, all-deadly X-Men to celebrate the uh, some sort of an anniversary. But uh, we were kind of wired not to trust him. So maybe I just received the stories a little bit differently But I think, uh, in the years since I've done my own sort of, uh, mental retcon Where Professor X was sort of like this, uh, loving father figure Back in the long ago And, uh, turns out, uh, no, not really But, um, with that said, you know, I've been giving him some guff of late But when he came sauntering up to the the trailer Dressed as a hermit, in his hermit garb, um I, I laughed, because <laughs> it's just so ridiculous That, uh, I mean, the X-Men Like, he didn't tell the X-Men he was doing this They were just in the same helicopter together And they see him, and they're like Oh, it's Professor X in his hermit garb Like, where did he change into his uh, his garb? Where did he change clothes? It's, it's insane, it, it really is And, I mean, at the end of the day What was even the point of it? Uh, he went in and told the Locust to repent And then when the Locust didn't the X-Men fought him anyway, and then he just said, hey, I told you so. It was really very stupid. Anyway, I think that's all I really have to say about it. After after saying I had nothing to say about it, I, I spoke about it for, like, three or four minutes. But uh, I think that's about it. Um, we are going to continue our path down the corridor of really bad villains for the next couple of episodes, and then uh, maybe get back to some semblance of uh, business as usual, at least, at least I hope so. I've been looking at the covers for upcoming issues, and I know that... Uh, Well, there are some treats coming our way. Well, with all that said, how about we visit the X-Men in the letters pages here? We got several letters. Let's uh, hop right in. We'll start with Mark in Michigan. Now, Mark loved X-Men number 20 and 21, found them to be very exciting. Loved seeing Lucifer again, and also enjoyed meeting the Supreme One. He does have a complaint, though, that there might have been too many thought balloons and word bubbles in this issue. To which Stan says that they'll try to keep their thought balloons under control moving forward. And shockingly, he doesn't just pass the buck to Rascally Roy I figured he'd be like, hey, we got a new writer and you take this up with him But uh, no, no, he just says, hey, we'll take it under advisement Next up, we got HP in Laos Now, as he's in Laos, they're several months behind the American readers So uh, they have just read X-Men number 16, which was the final chapter of the Sentinel Saga now uh, they question the logic of using a giant crystal to break the transmission from the mo- master mold. Mother mold—that's uh, current in it. Master mold to the Sentinels, though uh, they don't really have any objections to it either. Loves all of Marvel's books except for Millie the Model because yuck, girl book. Now Stan hands this concern over to Rascally Roy, who gives us a pseudo-scientific answer, which translates to, "Huh? You got us." Next we got D. Bruce in Illinois, and this is a weird one. Kind of baffling, and it makes me wonder exactly what D. Bruce is talking about or referring to He mentions a superhero called The Misfit Who I don't have any recollection of He then goes on a screed about Marvel using communists as villains uh, Into a philosophical discussion of college students acquiring knowledge and then asking challenging questions I don't know, and I'm in good company because Stan doesn't seem to know either He asks if D. Bruce may be meant to write into the Congressional record, but lost their address and just decided to write to Marvel instead. Uh, I guess that's as good a guess as any. And I do wonder if uh, D. Bruce is still reading comics, and if they are, what they think of the use of Russians as villains even to this very day. Anyway, Kim in Minnesota wants to know what Warren does with his wings when out of costume, which makes me wonder if Kim has read a single issue of this book before. Anyway, Stan lets them know that Warren folds them down when he's in his civvies, and he also takes this opportunity to poke a bit of fun at Hawkman over at Brand-Ech for malting. Charles in New York loved X-Men number 20 and 21 and says they were the best issues yet. Really? Really? Um, he was happy to see Lucifer again and learn his origin story, as well as finding out how Professor X lost the use of his legs. He wishes that there were a longer fight scene between the X-Men and the big green robots, which, come on, dude, come on, Really? He says that until Beast goes on a diet, we can make his marvel. And Stan only chooses to comment on Beast going on a diet. Irvin in Michigan. Now, Irvin wonders if Irving Forbush might be related to Milton Forbush, who he claims gave Abe Lincoln the theater tickets, gave George Washington the cold that killed him, and also forgot the Alamo. I don't know if this is a topical reference, but... Uh, a search of Google only brings up obituaries for people who happen to be named Milton Forbush, which they were a bunch of people named Milton forbush i who who knew who knew uh, Stan says that he'll find out, but he confirms that Irving is the cousin of Benny Forbush, and that's the fellow who gave King Kong directions to the Empire State Building and um I don't have to go through the painstaking step by step process of mailing a letter again, right? Like Irvin had to go fetch his stationery a pen. You know, write it out, fold it in three, get a stamp. I don't have to do that again, right? I mean, okay. Mock in Oregon, or Oregon. He enjoyed X-Men number 20, and warns Marvel not to overdo the, quote, bad guy imitating the good guy shtick. He cites that uh, they've been doing it a little too much of late. He also doesn't want to see too many villains in a single issue, and claims that that's what turned him off from enjoying Fantastic Four annual number three. Now, Mark enjoyed the art here, but wishes they didn't change Eunice's look. And, I mean, they kind of had to, right? That was a story beat. He was in a phony X-Men costume. That was the whole thing. Okay, um, he liked the origins of Lucifer and Professor X, and he tells Stan not to overdo it with the X-Men's vehicles. Stan's going to take this under advisement and suggest that they might even run a batch of stories where the good guys imitate the bad guys. Those were the letters, let's hop into the bullpen bulletins Otherwise known as newsworthy notes and nutty nonsense from your friendly neighborhood bullpen Item, Marvel heroes are coming to TV We've got five animated films, and uh, animated should probably be in quotes uh, we got Captain America, which I actually got on VHS around the turn of the century It's probably been... I, maybe I never watched it I know I, know I have it um, Also, Iron Man, Submariner, Thor, and Hulk these are being produced by Grant Ray Lawrence Animation out of Hollywood, and all Marvelites need to call their local television stations to make sure they're going to show them. And we're going to be talking more about these animated specials uh, as we as we continue through the essentials here. Item, more Marvel merch. And hold on to your hats, folks. we got a lot of merchandise to go through. We've got the paperback books, which we already discussed a few episodes back. We got the second wave here featuring the Hulk, another Fantastic Four, another Spidey, and Thor, the most dramatic hero in the Marvel Universe, hitting the shelves in July. We got phonograph record albums with comics on sale in September. Plastic model kits for Captain America, Hulk, and Spider-Man also on sale in September. Hats and hoods. I don't know how you just buy a hood, but uh, I guess you can. And if you want to buy a hood, you can get one with Spider-Man, Thor, Iron Man, or Captain America on it. Those are on sale in August Halloween costumes for Spider-Man and Captain America on sale in September Three and a half inch buttons on sale in August Those weird vending machine mini books are on sale now And we talked about those and you can find those online They are really, really weird Bubblegum trading cards and toy rings on sale now Action doll with Captain America and Nick Fury costumes hitting in June Board games and jigsaw puzzles. Captain America is on sale now. Spider-Man's coming in September. T-shirts and sweatshirts on sale in August. And also flicker rings, charms, and sticky labels coming out of vending machines hitting at some point during the summer. Item. More on the 25-cent summer specials, which I feel like we've been talking about for like the past 15 episodes. Of course, we got Millie the Model and Thor. Um, there's also a little bit more on the Marvel superheroes King Size special. It should come as no surprise that they are all reprints. We get the origin of Daredevil. We get some early Avengers stories, but most interesting of all, we get some Golden Age goodness from Submariner and the original Human Torch. And uh, I've been reading some of the Golden Age Submariner of late, and uh, it's brutal. And I, I don't mean I don't mean brutal as in bad, but uh, a lot more violent than I expected it to be. I mean. The first page Namor's on, he, you know, crushes somebody's head and stabs them multiple times, so it's interesting Item, now this is the scoop on subscriptions here $1.75 for a year's subscription to any Marvel mag, which is $2.25 in Canada and $3.25 foreign Stan promises that his soulful subscription sweetie, Nancy Murphy, will dole out two-tone no-prizes for good penmanship on the order forms Item. Folks who want to see Jack Kirby's ink work, rejoice. The King penciled and inked the Captain America story appearing in Fantasy Masterpieces number 4 on sale now-ish. Item. Stan thanks Princeton University's Wing Cleosophic Society for the warm reception they gave him when he recently spoke there. Now, this society is the oldest collegiate, collegiate debate and political union in the United States, founded in 1765 by students... Including future president James Madison And future milk trivia guy Aaron Burr Item Denny O'Neill moves into a trash can Okay um, now Denny is so upset that he is not spoken of enough In the bullpen bulletins page That he decided to live away from humans And move into an east side garbage can So I guess we can direct our letters there If we had a time machine Anyway, item. Now, the poll results on whether or not Stan should keep slamming the competition are in. And would you believe it's a tie? Well, personally, I don't believe that for a moment, but we'll let Stan get away with it. Uh, He says that they'll just play it by ear from this point on. Next up, let's head into the Mighty Marvel checklist here. We got Fantastic Four number 55, which features the return of the Silver Surfer. Spider-Man number 41 introduces the Rhino. Avengers 32 The Sign of the Serpent Daredevil number 20 uh, gives us a brand new villain and I checked the Marvel Wiki to see who this is and the only new villain to show up here is a uh, Clyde the Owl's goon. Okay. Thor 132 Thor heads into the Black Galaxy. Strange Tales 149 Shield versus AIM and it makes me wonder if AIM was them. Hmm. Also, Doctor Strange vs. Kalu, Suspense 82, Titanium Man vs. Iron Man. Again. And also, Captain America vs. the Adaptoid. And get used to me saying that. Tales to Astonish 84, Namor enslaved, and the Hulk rampages through New York City. Sergeant Fury number 34 features How Fury Met Dum Dum. Marvel Collector's Items Classics number 5. We got lots of reprints here. Fantastic Four, Iron Man, Doctor Strange, Hulk, and The Watcher. And I'm sure that Watcher story is a doozy. Marvel Tales number 4 features reprints of Spider-Man, Ant-Man, and Human Torch. Fantasy Masterpieces number 4, Golden Age Captain America and Jack Kirby inks. Thor King Size Special number 2, The Destroyer versus Thor and the Warriors 3, plus some, quote, much requested, unquote, reprints. And Marvel superheroes King Size Special Number 1 features, again, the origin of Daredevil, the Avengers vs. the Space Phantom, and the Golden Age Namor and Human Torch. Now, we usually wrap up the bullpen with a look into the Merry Marvel Marching Society, but, uh, well, we don't get an update here. I guess maybe they had a slow month, or, I don't know, maybe they just forgot they ran out of space. But, uh, no update. We can probably assume that there's at least 26 new members, and, uh, four or five of them are probably radio DJs. Okay, from here let's go into our own mailbag. Here we got a great letter from our friend Walt. He's talking about X Men number twenty-two. He says another solid episode. I'm continuing to enjoy your coverage of these Silver Age issues. All the more, I f- as I figure out, it's pretty unlikely I'll ever get around to, to reading them for myself. So I get to experience them vicariously through you and your coverage. Well, thanks so much, Walt. And I tell you what, that's uh, one of the reasons I decided to go all the way back to the Silver Age when uh, when I launched this. I wasn't sure what we were gonna do. In the off days between DCBS shipments And uh, by the way, I'm still waiting for my shipment It's been sitting at the Peoria, Arizona FedEx location For three or four days now Still pending I I don't know Uh, Maybe they're scanning it for uh, I couldn't even say But uh, it's not at my house yet That's why we're still doing the essentials So I was wondering What we would do to fill the days In between shipments of the new stuff As we were, you know, getting closer and closer To catching up and then being, you know Totally caught up And I thought about going back to the start of the Claremont run I thought, I thought about doing some of the 90s stuff I thought about doing the, the blue and gold stuff that sent me running for the hills I even thought about doing the Rosenberg run But then I started to reminisce about the days where I used to be Kind of like a walking X-Men encyclopedia And this was, I mean this was in the late 90s when there was far less continuity than there is nowadays So it's not like I'm bragging or anything I just, uh I read these books way too much, and I uh, I stuck around on on letter on message boards, and I read the letters pages, and I was on Usenet, and I was... I don't know, I was just really on top of uh, of most things X-related. So I miss those days, because now, I mean, so much of it is just so muddled. So I figured the best way to do that is to go back to the earliest stuff, and um, I've heard from several listeners of the show that the old stuff just isn't for them. You know, it's hard to read, and, and I mean... Look at the past few episodes here We're fighting the damn porcupine and the locust These these aren't the most These don't go down easy you know, They're pretty rough at, at points So yeah, I figured this would be a fun way To reintroduce myself to the Silver Age stuff While also sharing these with folks Who may not want to read them So I'm glad you're able to experience them Through this program uh, Walt continues it's Also very cool to get to hear the letters and such And I'm not listening just for those But they're definitely a great part of things And I would listen to a show just about the X issues And I'd also listen to a show just Covering the letters pages so this is the best Of both worlds Now here's an idea for Marvel how about you give us an Omnibus just collecting letters pages Bullpen bulletins etc from all their books For whatever range of years And yeah that would be amazing I don't know why they haven't done that yet I figure how much could something like that Actually cost You know, I haven't mentioned it, but the past couple of episodes of this show or past couple of issues that we've covered actually included the letters pages in the Marvel Unlimited version. So if you're following along in Marvel Unlimited or if you have access to Marvel Unlimited and want to see some of these old letters pages, you can pop into, you know, issues 23, 24, 25, and you'll see those letters pages, the ones that uh, we just discussed here on the program. You won't find the bullpen, though. You will not find the bullpen, which is unfortunate because... I mean, they're very, very fun And they're not something you see every day You know, I mean, I always talk about what we see every day On things like social media platforms and websites It's like, very samey, you know Very samey, very very (laughs) like-baity And uh, here we're doing bullpen bulletins That, you know, only we fake-ass comics historians care about But I definitely love them. It's uh, adding a little bit of a gestaltiness, if I'm using that word correctly. And I I use that word way too much, and I'm sure 80% of the time I'm using it wrong. But uh, hopefully you all know what I mean by it. Just putting ourselves in that time. And uh, I love it. And Stan did joke that he was going to put out a whole book of uh, bullpen bulletins. Call them, uh, was it, Marvel Collector's Item Classic Bullpens or something like that. And uh, that gave me an idea that uh, I might... I might start pulling these segments out of these episodes and compiling them to, to release later on as a, uh, you know, just as a letters page, bullpen bulletin thing, just to give some folks who may be on the fence about following the show a little bit of a, a peek into what comes along with the chatter about the actual, you know, X-Men story in the book. Walt continues citing the time he quipped on Facebook about how recently we did an episode covering an X-Men 21 or 22, and how now we're even further into the Essential X than any other current X-Men stuff of the main title, of course. And he asks if the, Hoxpo- the pre-Hoxbox version of Uncanny got only got up to issue number 22 as well, and I actually don't even think it got up that high. I think it was like 19 issues. I, I could be mistaken. I know... I don't remember what episode it was, but we did go through how quickly the X-Books are getting cancelled or or just rebooted nowadays, and uh, I did go through a list of, you know, where each volume ended, and it's a pretty, uh, I mean, I'm using the word sobering here very dramatically, but it's a little bit sobering how quickly... These books get uh, the plug pulled on them and get restarted. Now, Walt wraps up with a, an attempt at getting a fake-ass no-prize regarding the Mimic, knowing what it feels like to be growing wings. And he says, well, he's getting the powers of an X-Man, and Angel's one of them, so something's going on with his back, so of course it must be wings. And yeah, that I mean, that's as good an answer as we're going to get. It's certainly more thought than Stan put into it back in the long ago, but... You figure if the Mimic knows he's taking the X-Men's powers and suddenly he feels something happening in his back, what else is it going to be? It's got to be Wings. So yes, you get the fake-ass no prize, and it's been sent to you, so hopefully it reaches you in good health and you enjoy it. So thank you so much for writing in and sharing your thoughts, Walt. It really means a lot. Now, speaking of meaning a lot, let's head over to the shout-outs before we cut on out of here. I want to thank the folks who clicked the little like thing or the retweet thing or the little heart on whatever social media application that I shared these shows on. We're going to start by shouting out some folks on Twitter. I want to start with Craig Luckenbach, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Chris Bailey, the Shadow Punk comic, 21st Century Boys, Mark Jagger, Billy D., Walt Nealand, Jacob Jones, Dave Schultz, Joe Crawford, and Jeremiah Jones. Thank you all so much for helping to uh, signal boost this little program. Then over on Facebook, I want to thank Joe Crawford, Pat Sampson, Andrew Franklin, Chris Bailey, Jesse D. Young, Billy D., Walt Nealand, and Jeremiah. As I say, well, pretty much every episode, uh, it means a whole lot more to me than it probably should that you'd, uh, engage with my post. And if I were a more well-rounded and, uh, secure person, it probably wouldn't matter to me all that much. But there are only so many meds a man can take a day, right? So, thank you all so, so much. And, uh, hey, you know what? It's about that time where I thank you all for spending a little bit of your day with me today. It really does mean so much to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.